Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking to my friend Peter Atia. Peter is a doctor and the founder of Early Medical. He received his medical degree from Stanford University, and then he trained at Johns Hopkins in general surgery. He also trained at the NIH as a surgical oncology fellow and at the National Cancer Institute. And he's also the host of his own podcast, The Drive. But today we focus on his new best-selling book. The title is Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. And that really is our focus. We talk about health span as opposed to mere lifespan, the lessons that can be learned from centenarians and supercentenarians, diet and nutrition, including topics like sugar and macronutrients, alcohol, fasting and time-restricted eating, exercise, heart disease, blood pressure, cholesterol, cancer, brain health, metabolic disorders, proactive medical testing, medication side effects, esoteric drugs like rapamycin, emotional health, and other topics. The full conversation runs three hours, so it is a um, fairly comprehensive look at most of the variables we might control to maximize the chances of living a long and healthy life. And now I bring you Peter Atia. I am here with Peter Atia. Peter, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Sam, thank you so much for having me. So uh, you have written this uh, amazing book, which uh, we're going to talk about. The title is Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. And first of all, congratulations on the book. It really appears to have been trumpeted from the ramparts everywhere, from, from Oprah on down, and, and it's really getting out there. So it's got to be gratifying, because when you, when you publish any book, to say nothing of a first book, you really have no idea what's on the other side of that printing press, and uh, you, this is really about as good of an outcome as, as I can imagine, so that's um, got to feel good. It does, yeah, and um, I think I was, this time a year ago, I guess effective at least when we're recording this, was when I really had the thing ripped out of my hands by the publisher, and I, I remember sort of thinking to myself, like, I'm not happy about this. It's not perfect, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure the same thing that you've thought of many times as you've obviously written a number of successful books. But then I had this thought that sort of calmed me, which was, look, is it, is it at the point now where I will, be, I will be proud if my kids read this in 20 years? And if I can answer yes to that question, then the rest is sort of out of my hands. And maybe people will hate it, and maybe people will find a bunch of mistakes in it, and all of this sort of insecurities that I'm sure every author goes through. But I know that once I kind of got to that point of saying, as long as my kids will one day be proud of it, which I know that sounds a bit corny, it'll be, it'll be okay. And then, and then I think the rest sort of took care of itself. Yeah. Well, it's quite a useful book, and it, it's a very candid book, too, which I mean, you really go into your story in considerable depth. Before we jump into the, the topics at hand, we're, we're going to sort of track through your book. Obviously, there's much more detail in the book, and I recommend people read it if they want more detail on any of the topics we touch. I should also say that you have a podcast, The Drive, which really goes into extraordinary detail on all of the topics we'll touch and, and many others. So you know, if we're going to talk for 10 minutes about lipids uh, for cardiovascular health, your podcast probably has 10 hours on that topic. I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. So I, I, I think I you're underdoing that. it. I think I think I have ten 
<laughs> more than 10 podcasts on right, right? Okay, each so one of 30 hours, hours yeah. yeah 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 so there's quite a wilderness of detail awaiting anyone who wants to follow you into it but before we jump into the topics perhaps you can summarize your background and career in medicine because you you have you've had a kind of an interesting story of how you have come to emphasize the the kinds of topics you have have focused on yeah so i you know i didn't want to go to medical school at any point during my life i was not a pre med or anything like that in fact i'd already sort of finished engineering when i had a change of heart decided to go back and do medicine and in medical school like many others i'm sure i was a little undecided about what to do always always had an interest in oncology and when i showed up in med school kind of thought i might do pediatric oncology but by the end of medical school realized i had more of a surgical personality and so decided to do surgery with the plan to then go on and specialize in surgical oncology and after five years of my residency, for a number of reasons, some of which I write about in the book, I just became quite frustrated with what, it, what I've later come to call Medicine 2.0, although at the time, of course, I had no idea that that's what was really frustrating me. Then I just decided to kind of leave. I sort of felt like the last 10 years had sort of been, um, you know, not a good use of my time, frankly, and I wanted to go back and get another degree, probably an MBA, felt I already had enough debt, and so uh, instead I joined a company called McKinsey and Co Company, which is a, a consulting firm, and uh, you know, sort of went down the path of, of corporate finance and risk there, which was very appealing to me and to my, um, my sensibilities around uh, quantitative things. I, I missed my background in, in, in mathematics and uh, was sort of happily marching along doing that and sort of spent six years completely away from medicine until my own health became of a high enough priority to me and a high enough interest that the endless pursuit of trying to understand that better kind of gradually led me back into the notion of practicing medicine again, but, but obviously doing it in a very different way, which is, you know, through this lens of prevention as opposed to last minute treatment. Right. And, and you've gone very deep into topics like diet and nutrition and exercise, I mean, more than the average physician, I would say. And uh, we will cover that. So let, let's start with what would be our first chapter here on the topic of longevity and really health span, I think is your preferred word. Because, I mean, you know, it's more than a matter of just not dying. Um, how do you think about the main causes of mortality and, and the main causes of reduced health span. And maybe, maybe we should define health span at the outset here. Yeah. So I think longevity is best explained, at least for me conceptually. I think of longevity as a function of these two things, lifespan and health span. Lifespan being the easier to understand because it's the binary one. It's the, you know, you're alive or you're dead, you're respiring or you're not. And the current medical system is really focused mostly on lifespan. It's the metric that gets measured, and it's the metric, obviously, that therefore gets managed. Health span, which is obviously not binary, is somewhat subjective as well, really speaks to quality of life. And while I think that everybody intuitively gets that, certainly I'm sure if you ask a person, you know, would you want to live to 100 if the last 20 years of your life you were cognitively or physically debilitated? I think most people would immediately say, no, not really. So mm -hmm. very long 
very long lifespan in the absence of health span is not desirable. But similarly, wonderful health span with insufficient lifespan is also undesirable. You know, Sam, if I said, you know, you're going to die at 60, but you're going to be from now until 60, you're going to be as strong and cognitively sharp as you were in your 20s. I, I still think we would view that as tragic as well. Your lifespan was cut short. So what we're really trying to do is optimize both. But I think the biggest insight I've had in the past five years is that if you focus relentlessly on health span, you get the lifespan mm -hmm. benefits typically along the way. If you do the reverse, that's not necessarily true. So what can we learn from centenarians and I guess you call them super centenarians, people who, who live to be 100 and beyond, and in many cases really thrive? I mean, it's almost like their, their health span is extended by two decades or more with respect to the average population. What have we learned from them, and, and, and to what degree do you think they're the correct lens through which to look at the goal here and, and the, the strategy and tactics we might use to extend longevity and health span? Well, this is a question I've been interested in for about a decade. And there are two people who have really done a lot of work on the centenarians, the offspring of centenarians, and even the supra centenarians, those who live to be 110 and beyond. And these two folks are both here in the U.S. So one is a guy named Thomas Pearls at uh, Boston University, and the other is near Barzilai at Albert Einstein College in New York. Now, understandably, most of the work that Pearls and Barzilai have put into this have been focused on kind of, you know, the more high-tech side of the question, which is, you know, what are the genes that are associated with this exceptional longevity? Because it's pretty clear that it's a genetic benefit that's been bestowed on these very infrequent individuals. Uh, in fact, from a behavioral standpoint, you know, you'll, <laughs> it's kind of amusing to look at the, the typical lifestyle of the average mm. centenarian. You know, on average, they're more likely to smoke, more likely to drink to excess, less likely to exercise, and more likely to have poor eating habits. So it didn't take long for people to figure out that these guys were, you know, winning the genetic lottery and not, you know, living like monks. And understandably, I think most of the effort has been on what are those genes. I touch on that in the book. But for me, the big aha moment came roughly 2014 when I was kind of reading a paper about centenarian mortality. And I realized that if you look at the mortality tables of centenarians, it looks very similar to the mortality of the rest of us. It just has a 20-year phase shift. And that might sound really obvious, but it's actually not right? Because what it says is centenarians are just as likely to die from heart disease eventually. They're just as likely to die from cancer eventually. And by the way, they're just as likely to die from cancer once they get a cancer diagnosis as the rest of us. What this tells us is that their superpower, which again is brought on genetically, is a delay in the onset of disease, not in a resilience to a disease once they have it. I want to have a separate chapter here on specific medications and supplements that, that might be derived from any insights we've had into the genomes of centenarians and the, through other means, so things like rapamycin and metformin. Mm -hmm. But how do you use what we've learned about centenarians so far in your thinking through the strategy and, and tactics 
you employ in in your in your medical practice and just you know personally and I, and perhaps you you want to differentiate between strategy and tactics and in, in how you think about longevity yeah so i think that, that that's that's a great way to lead into this which is that insight which as i say it sounds relatively so whatish i think for me was a real wake up call and it made me realize that the only way one is going to somehow improve their longevity is to think about prevention through a much longer lens. So we have to pretend that our, you know, our coronary arteries at the age of 80, we need to position them to look like they would otherwise look at 60. And the only way to do that is to think about primordial prevention as opposed to just quote unquote primary prevention. So let's use coronary artery disease as an example of that because it is the most ubiquitous cause of death in the United States globally for men and for women. It really is the, um, you know, the, the great equalizer. Hmm. We know this from as early as the early 1970s, late 1960s, when they were doing autopsy studies on young men who were dying in Vietnam, that even you know, 18-year-old men have, while not gross evidence of atherosclerosis, i.e. you wouldn't open up their coronary arteries and see clots, histologically, they already have the process in, in, embedded. So in other words, if you look under a microscope at their coronary arteries, you'll see the foam cells, you know, the macrophages that have ingested cholesterol that's been oxidized in the arterial wall. And you realize that that process is actually beginning as we're children. And the slow burn of that process is such that for most people, it doesn't become clinically relevant until you hit about 65. So about 50% of men who are going to have a coronary event in their life will have it before the age of 65. And about a third of women who will have a coronary event in their life will have it before the age of 65. So that gives you a sense of the timescale. Well, if we want to prevent that, we can't really wait until you're 50. That's, that's effectively the point here. Hmm. We have to take prevention much more seriously, and we have to significantly bend the arc of the disease curve basically as soon as possible. And we do have examples of this working already, right? So if you take children who are born with something called familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a not terribly uncommon genetic disorder that results in unusually high levels of cholesterol, these are indeed people who can have, you know, MIs, myocardial infarction, heart attack in their 20s. And these are kids that actually have to be medicated as youngsters. And if you do that, and if you do it aggressively, these kids can go on to live normal lives. Well, we'll have a separate chapter on heart health and and uh, you know cardiovascular disease uh, here. But um, let's talk about diet and nutrition. This is the really the the first stop in most people's thinking uh, with respect to how to prevent you know really all of the diseases of aging and to live a healthy life. You know, I, I consider it one of the great scandals of medicine and and science generally that there, there's still any uncertainty about what constitutes a healthy human diet. I mean, it's just amazing to me that there's such a diversity of opinion on this topic. I mean, there are people who will tell you that whole grains and legumes are among the healthiest things you can eat. And there are people who will tell you with, with equal confidence that they're just pure poison. And there are whole diets marketed around these antithetical views. And you know, so I, I had thought prior to this conversation that, that the one totally uncontroversial point in nutrition now is that refined sugar is generally bad for us. And maybe that, that's still the case. I mean, it's, it's generally described as the, the dietary equivalent of smoking. 
but right before um getting on the on the mic with you I, remember, I think I think it was yesterday I stumbled upon this uh YouTuber who apparently spent 100 days on a diet consisting of nothing but 2000 calories of ice cream and 500 calories of protein powder plus booze and he lost 32 pounds and totally revamped his lipid profile uh obviously that's just an n of 1 and who knows if it's true but what do we absolutely know is true about diet and nutrition at this point? I mean, so let, let, let's go from gr- through gradations of certainty here. What what are you what are you sure of with respect to diet and nutrition that is generically applicable to more or less everyone who would listen to this? And what what do you think is just very likely to be true? And let, let's just sort of track through with those two flags with respect to our epistemic certainty as we touch the various topics. How should people think about diet and nutrition here? And is there anything on this landscape that is the equivalent of a generic certainty like it's not a good idea to smoke cigarettes, which I I think is a piece of health wisdom we have truly conquered at this point? Yeah, I like the way you framed the question, Sam. And it's sort of funny because you know, as you know, you've read the book, there's like 17 chapters, two of them are on nutrition, three of them are on exercise, everything else gets one chapter, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly, exercise and nutrition get a little extra attention, in part due, I suppose, to their complexity in the case of nutrition and the impact in the case of exercise. However, during the first writing of the book, I was so annoyed by the problem you describe that I very uh, sort of cheekily sent my editor a one-page version of the nutrition chapter, and I said, this is the chapter. And it was what you just said. It's like, here's what we know. And it was like, I don't know, six bullet points. And I said, how about I just do this and spare myself and the readers all of the crap that follows where I have to start getting into some uncertainty. Needless to say, that didn't go over very well. But what I basically said is, here's what we know. We know that when it comes to nutrition, too much and too little are problematic though generally on different timescales. Let's expand on that for a second. We've been around for, you know, depending on where you want to draw the line in the sand of where we began as, you know, homo sapiens versus, you know, previous forms. Let's just make it easy and say like a couple hundred thousand years, right? And for most of that period of time, food has been relatively scarce. So that's fact one. Fact two is, I would argue this, I think you would probably agree, Sam, What separates us as humans from every other species on this planet is our brain. That's that's the sort of that's our superpower, right? It's certainly not how strong we are or how fast we are or any other sort of physical power. It's it's really it's 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 really our brains that differentiate us. That brain is an insanely energetic organ. So roughly 25% of our caloric need goes to servicing that organ that constitutes 2% of our mass. Therefore, the trick that allowed us, and only us, to leapfrog out of the swamp ahead of every other species was the capacity to store energy. And it's important to understand just how profound that is, right? If we couldn't store weeks and weeks of energy, we wouldn't be here. Now, we store most of that as fat. So obviously, excess fat gets stored as fat. Excess carbohydrate gets stored as fat beyond the paltry amount we can store as glycogen, which is just a fancy word for the storage form of glucose. 
And in times of relatively short fasts, we just break that fat down and use it as energy. And in relatively long periods of fasts, we turn that fat into something called ketones and we use those as energies. But regardless, we can go a relatively long time without food. By comparison, of course, a mouse can go like two days without food before it dies. Even a lean person could go 20 or 30 days without eating. Hmm. So what's the price we pay for that superpower? Well, up until relatively recently, we've paid no price for that superpower. It's only in the last hundred or so years where we have shifted from hundreds of thousands of years of food scarcity to tragic food abundance, are we starting to show that actually the, the drawback of this remarkable capacity to store excess energy is X, Y, and Z. And there are these metabolic consequences of doing so. Now, again, those are chronic problems, not acute problems. And therefore, on a relatively long time scale, food scarcity or food shortage is still a much greater evolutionary concern. In fact, you would argue that natural selection has really no interest in the problem of overnutrition. Mm. But to go back to your question, what is what can I say definitively? I can say that too much nutrition is going to be bad chronically. We'll go into more detail. And too little nutrition is going to be bad acutely. That's fact one. Fact two is there are certain amino acids and fatty acids that are absolutely essential for life, meaning there are certain types of foods primarily in the form of fats and proteins that we must consume in some quantity from the outside world, and failure to do so will result in horrific consequences. So, you know, not just general caloric malnourishment, but, you know, deficiencies in cartilage, bone, muscle, things of that nature. There are also certain uh, nutrients, you know, essential vitamins and minerals that are absolutely essential for life. Everybody, of course, knows the story of, story of the, you know, the sailors who were not given enough vitamin C in their rations, developed scurvy, et cetera, things like that. There are certain things that are toxic to us acutely. So, you know, we don't do very well with certain types of bacteria. So, you know, E. coli in our food, relatively problematic. That's about where it ends, Sam. That's, mm. that's, you know, that's about all I can tell you with capital T truth written all over it. Meaning those are the things that are kind of universally true for which there's no ambiguity. If we start to get into how many grams of protein a day do you need? Why is it that someone can eat 7,000 or pardon me, 2,000 calories of sugar per day and still lose weight? I mean, I, I have lots of thoughts on those things and I hopefully have more insight on those things than maybe the average person on Twitter. But um, we are we're definitely less able to reliably say things. And I guess that speaks to another nature, another element of the problem, which is the human body is, it has a remarkable dampening factor quality when it comes to nutrition, right? Like so, so if you think of a system, like an engineering system where you put inputs into it and then you get the outputs out, I think of the body as this remarkable dampener, where when you put things in, it, it sort of squashes the output. So it's very difficult to, in the short term, discern how the input affected the output, right? So mm. body weight is an example. Y you know, what you ate the day before from a caloric standpoint, believe it or not, doesn't have an enormous impact on your body weight the next day. That's probably more a function of water weight 
and sodium than the actual weight of the food because most food comes with so much water in it. So therefore, looking at your body weight five times a day is not really a good way to determine energy balance. There's so many other movement systems in it. Furthermore, there's so much variability in our system with how we process nutrients with respect to other variables, such as sleep. So we'll maybe talk about sleep, but a poor night of sleep impacts insulin signaling more than most people would appreciate. And certainly several nights of poor sleep would have an even bigger effect. And the impact of that, i.e. insulin sensitivity on fuel partitioning, meaning how you store the nutrients you consume them, and then how you go back to the energy well to draw them from storage, is quite significant actually. So under two nearly identical circumstances, food-wise, two different nights of sleep could also impact things. So all of these things make it very difficult to study the problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one point about evolution, I, and you actually make this in the book, I mean, evolution can't see really anything we care about. And, it, and surprisingly to many people, it can't see the variables that, that would determine our health span and longevity past, certainly past our 50s, right? I mean, we're just, it's, it just simply doesn't care about you living to a ripe old age and being able to swing kettlebells into your 80s. Uh, it just cares about you spawning and maybe helping your children secure their spawning period so that, you know, you, maybe there's a, you can be a young grandparent from the point of view of evolution and still have some genetic utility. But after that, there's just no, evolution is blind to what we care about. And so I, I guess I, I'm always hesitant to, when I hear of a diet that is using our evolved environment as a reference point, say like, you know, like a, the paleo diet, right? Where it seems to put a lot of stock in the 200,000 years that preceded the, the present moment. I just, I, I'm wondering the, 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 about the, how you view the, the limitations of the lessons we can draw from that. It just seems to me that we're living in the, in the world of science fiction now. If we care about living to 120 with anything like a, a modicum of health span, we're, you know, we have to figure it out on the basis of principles that evolution has never anticipated. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And it's one I think a lot about. And you're, you're absolutely right, by the way. In fact, I could, just taking us back for a second, I could point to a couple of genes that persisted because of, you know, evolutionary advantage that are a distinct disadvantage today. So the LP little a phenotype, which is com comes from the LPA gene and the ApoE4 gene. So these are both genes that are highly prevalent today and highly associated with disease, cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease, respectively. It might be tempting to ask the question, why the heck do these genes exist? And we know that the ApoE gene, uh, the E4 isoform was the original isoform. Well, I think the easiest answer is one, evolution doesn't care about Alzheimer's disease because nobody's getting it before reproduction. But even two, it's that the ApoE4 isoform offered protection in a world where infection ran rampant. And the same is probably true of LPA. It certainly increased blood clotting, which would have been a huge advantage if you can think about it, right? Hundreds of thousands of years ago, if not just a few hundred years ago, to have more, you know, to have a, a greater likelihood of clotting in the event of a cut would have been an enormous advantage. 
today it's not so much an advantage and all, all of the negative consequences of LP literally work against you. So, so with all that said, lots of examples of, of, of those situations. When it comes to nutrition, I find it hard to make the case that any extreme diet is our optimal diet, but I find myself relying on an evolutionary example here, which is we were the most opportunistic omnivores around. So I, I can certainly make the case for extreme diets to treat disease, meaning if a person has type 2 diabetes, then maybe some extreme diet or some sort of extreme dietary restriction is the optimal diet. But I would certainly argue that if you don't have, you know, if you're just starting from a place of health, I feel like one shouldn't have to be that restrictive. Though maybe I find myself, you know, making this argument based on the fact that we have lots of evidence that at least to certain age, and, and this of course is based on looking at the the few remaining hunter-gatherer societies that do still manage to make it into, you know, old age, consuming, you know, basically opportunistic omnivore diets. So, so it's a little bit of evolution, but it's also a little bit of looking at, you know, for example, you, you know, s certain hunter-gatherers that still do exist, for example, in Australia and Africa. Okay, well, so let's talk about macronutrients, right? We're talking about uh, fat, protein, and carbs. I guess to come back to the crazy example I, I started with of the guy who ate nothing but ice cream or 2,000 calories of ice cream plus 500 calories of protein powder and uh, alcohol. <laughs> so he, he sounded like he had fun, at least for the first week. The fact that it was ice cream rather than Skittles makes me think that maybe there was, it's not quite as insane a story as, as it, it might seem because I remember the, the one time I, tracked my, my blood glucose uh, for you know, 14 days, I was actually surprised to find that, that ice cream, I assume because the, the sugar is being mediated by fat, was not as, as a high glycemic load as, as many other things that were ostensibly much healthier that I might eat. Like a, I remember a, a, a vegetarian burrito just sent my blood sugar you know, off the charts, whereas ice cream was pretty uh, you know, unspectacular. But um, in any case, so I, I, how do you think about fat, protein, and carbs in general? For it, what, what generically can you say about what most human beings most of the time require on that front? And how can you extrapolate from, from those principles to what we might assume is a, if not the perfect diet, at the very least, a very safe bet for a healthy one? So, so I think about this in, in kind of a formulaic way that maybe takes a little bit of the romance out of eating, which doesn't mean that I necessarily adhere to it with that rigor. But if, if I'm going to think about this as an engineering problem, it's actually, I think, quite simple. So, but before I do that, I think it's worth kind of addressing the, perhaps the, the mystery in the ice cream man. So let's assume that this is correct. And, and I think that's a, that's not an assumption one should take lightly, mm -hmm. right? So. I think the, the whole, you know, I did this on YouTube, therefore it's true, is, is, is one needs to have a, a healthy degree of skepticism, and it would be more interesting to see that in a clinical trial. But let's just assume there was a clinical trial that said we took, you know, 700 overweight people whose, you know, whatever, average caloric intake in the run-in period was X, and we created a 25% caloric deficit that 
consisted of what you just described, do you think they're going to lose weight? My answer to that question would be yes. I would be, I would, I would expect them to lose weight. In other words, I think that the single greatest determinant of energy balance is indeed, uh, or maybe a better way to say this, the single greatest determinant of, of weight loss is going to be energy imbalance, would be hmm. maybe the most accurate way I could say that. So in other words, a caloric deficit, no matter what you're eating. No matter what it's constituted by. Yeah. That's right. So, so, so if, we, if we did another you know, thought experiment and we said, look, we're going we're gonna to take you know, 1,000 people who are all ostensibly overweight, and let's just make it really elegant and say that they're all basically genetically equivalent, so it's just like a bunch of mice. And they're, they're all coming in at 3,500 calories per day, and their weight's stable at 3,500 calories per day. We're going to divide them into two groups, and the first group is going to go on a 2,800-calorie-a-day diet of junk food. The other group is going to go on a 4,000-calorie-a-day diet of whole foods right? The best, you know, mm. whatever, come up with your favorite best diet. There's no doubt in my mind that that group eating 4,000 calories per day is going to be heavier when the trial is done than the other group. And by the way, they might also be less healthy at that big of a gap, mm -hmm. right? Because of something we, we should probably talk about, which is why is it that excess energy is harmful? Because it's not the aesthetics, right? It's, 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 it's not because you lose your six-pack that you're unhealthy. There's something going on that's much more important to understand. So with all of that said, how do I, how do I think about the problem? I think about the problem by saying, and there's really a fourth macronutrient, Sam, that we should at least mention, which is alcohol. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason is alcohol is so calorically dense, right? So I think most people know that you know, carbs and proteins are roughly four kilocalories per gram. Fat is nine calorie, kilocalories per gram. Well, ethanol is seven. So one has to be mindful if they're in the business of trying to lose weight of just mindlessly consuming alcohol for at least two reasons. The first being the energetic reason. The second being if you're anything like me, there's no greater way to reduce my inhibition around food than yeah. to give me a couple of drinks. Yeah. So I start with protein because protein is the most important in my view. And there's different ways to think about this, but I would just start by saying that the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance, is clearly incorrect. And I, I go to great lengths in the book to kind of explain this. I've also written about this elsewhere. I've got multiple podcasts on the topic. The RDA, which offers something to the tune of 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, or sort of 0.5 to 0.8, I think is the RDA. You know, that's sort of what it takes to not have malnourishment. But if we want to really talk about thriving, especially in people over 50, it's probably closer to 0.8 to 1 gram per pound of body weight. Mm. So again, that's a huge difference, right? So if you take a person who weighs 175 pounds or 80 kilos, the RDA would say that person can get away with 60 grams of protein. I'm arguing that person should be between about 150 and 180. So it's a huge difference. And I'm certainly not saying this alone. Some, some, some you know, people much smarter than me would, would agree with that. So we start with that. The next thing I'm, think, I'm thinking about in the, uh, in the formula is what is your carbohydrate tolerance? So you mentioned a moment ago that you'd, you'd worn a, a glucose tracking device, I assume a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I think those are really helpful 
tools to give people a sense of what I mean by carbohydrate tolerance. Carbohydrates are also very important, and I, I unfortunately bear a tiny bit of responsibility in a, in a previous life for probably demonizing them too much. But, but the reality of it is, you know, carbohydrates are, are, are important. They're our most abundant and quickest source of energy. So there's nothing you can do to turn food source into ATP quicker than glucose. And it is the preferred fuel of our brains. In fact, even in a state of total starvation, 40 days without food, which, believe it or not, was actually studied by George Cahill at Harvard back in the 1960s, not a study to be replicated. They had subjects that fasted for 40 days. Mm. They were still getting 50% of the energy to their brain was coming from glucose. The other 50% was coming from ketones. If you ask, where does that glucose come from when you're starving? It's because making the ketones and breaking down the fat to do so creates a byproduct that gets recycled into glucose called glycerol. Mm. But anyway, glucose is important. The problem with glucose is too much of it chronically is harmful, not acutely. Acutely, we are much more interested in protecting against the downside and not having enough of it. So hypoglycemia is acutely fatal. Hyperglycemia is not outside of very extreme circumstances that can only exist if you have type 1 diabetes. So the body, again, going back to kind of the evolutionary thing we talked about earlier, isn't really working that hard to protect you from a blood glucose of 150 milligrams per deciliter, which is about 50% higher than normal. It doesn't truly care. However, the effect of that over many years is devastating. It will destroy your kidneys. It will destroy your heart. It will destroy anything in your body, including your brain, that has small blood vessels. And that's why people with type 2 diabetes have twice the risk of most diseases, right? Cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. Mm. But that's, that's not a huge difference, right? So we have to figure out what's our limit. And I think there's sort of two ways to think about this. What's your average blood glucose and how much variability is there in what you eat? And again, you can figure this out using traditional biomarkers. You can figure this out using a continuous glucose monitor. But basically, once you figure out how much protein you need, the next question is, how much carbohydrate can you tolerate while keeping yourself in those parameters? And I offer some suggestions for these, but I think if you're going to be really aggressive and have, if you want sort of an A plus on your report card here, I would say having an average blood glucose below 100 milligrams per deciliter, so that takes into account all the peaks and valleys, mm -hmm. would be considered excellent. And that would correspond to about a hemoglobin A1C of 5.0. Now, what determines that? Well, your activity level, how much muscle mass you have, how insulin sensitive you are, how well you sleep, how much hypercortisolemia is going on. Genetic factors certainly play a role in it. All of these things will matter. And even for a given individual, they'll change. So when I was, you know, a cyclist, I could consume 800 grams of carbohydrates a day and still be within that band. Today, it's much lower than that. So you, you sort of have to know what that looks like. And then the final point is that fat makes up the difference. And the total amount of fat that goes in as basically a plug is to determine where you need to be on energy balance. So believe it or not, in a reasonably healthy diet, your appetite can serve as a reasonable backstop for how much you need to eat. And mm. by the way, going back to the funny example you gave of the guy eating ice cream all day, one thing I'm always interested in, and I don't know if the guy talked about this in his video, is what was his degree of satiation? You know, in other words, when you're eating 2,000 calories of ice cream a day, what kind of cravings was he having for other food? 
And was he satiated? Did he go to bed at night feeling like I'm full? Or did he kind of go to bed starving because his body was actually demanding more, but he was kind of capping it artificially? Mm. Did he comment on that? I, I don't remember. I, I remember that the punchline was that he was ultimately quite miserable on this diet. I mean, he, he was surprised to, to be as uh, unhappy as he was, despite the, the improvements in his uh, weight and, and lipid profile. But he, he was not having fun, ultimately. But there's another component to that, right? Which I think is, you know, I think you asked earlier, like, what, what, would, what would we agree on is universally true? Another way to ask that question is, if you had all the experts in the room, could they agree on what is the driver of the modern epidemic of obesity? So it's a different question, but right. they're related, right? Yeah. Well, why have we never had an answer to that? And I think the answer is that the nature of science is that most people study one pathway or one, one vehicle. And in obesity, I think there are so many that I think there are a dozen plausible explanations. And it may be that every individual who's obese is, you know, their obesity may be driven by two or three of those as the dominant drivers versus others. So for example, one theory of obesity is that our food is so much less nutrient dense than it used to be. And there's, this is one thing I actually didn't write about in the book that I really wanted to, but there simply wasn't enough room to get into nutrient density and to talk about, for example, soil health and how soil health impacts plant health and that how, how that impacts animal health, et cetera. But there's very little doubt that, the, that food today, whether it be spinach or beef or barley or whatever, has fewer nutrients in it than it did 100 years ago. Mm. And the question is, are we intrinsically innately wired to seek a certain volume of nutrient? And as the density of our food, uh, nutrient density of our food goes down, are we simply seeking more calories to meet our nutrient needs? That's, right. that's an argument. There's another argument that says the same thing. We're hardwired to get a certain amount of protein, but as our sources of protein are getting diluted, we're seeking out higher and higher caloric volumes of food to meet the same protein requirements. Other theory, of course, is that it's all driven by palatability. The more palatable the food, the more likely we are to seek it out. So you, you get the idea that there's multiple theories. It's also possible they're all kind of partially right. So on this question of protein, I think in your book you, you emphasize, as uh, you did here, that as you get older, it becomes even more important to focus on how much protein you're getting. What are the prospects of getting sufficient protein, as sufficient as to just defined by you, something like a gram per pound of body weight if you're a vegetarian or a vegan? Uh, I realize this is dangerous territory with respect to getting put on the ra radar of the vegan mafia, but um, what are your thoughts about cutting meat and even all animal protein out of one's diet and still getting the requisite amount of protein as one gets older? I mean, I think it's still possible. It just gets harder. There's, there's no question. It's a trade-off. What you're referring to is anabolic resistance, and that kind of you know, starts yeah, roughly in your 50s, but, but certainly increases probably non-linearly from there. And that's where you probably have to start getting closer to that one gram per pound of body weight to maintain maximal muscle protein synthesis, the process by which muscle gets broken down and rebuilt. And the reason this is so important is that sarcopenia is an enormous problem of the elderly. Sarcopenia is the disorder of low muscle mass. And with sarcopenia and frailty 
comes enormous mortality. Uh, I think this is actually kind of the hidden epidemic of aging. Mm. You know, I do write about this, but I think I write about it a little bit more in the exercise chapter, which is once a person reaches the age of 65, if they fall and break their hip, and I can't imagine there's a person listening to us speak now, Sam, who doesn't know somebody for whom that's happened, right? It's like, oh, my friend's mother or somebody, right? Mm. I, I've literally talked to two patients in the last week who have had parents go through this. So if you're over the age of 65, you fall and break your femoral neck or your femur, there's a 15 to 30% chance you will be dead in the next 12 months. And if you don't die in the next 12 months, of those who survive, meaning of the 70 to 85% who survive, there's a 50% chance you will have a full-scale reduction in your mobility for the remainder of your life. Meaning, if before this incident you walked freely, you will forever be using a cane. If before this incident you mm. were using a cane, you will be in a walker, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to a wheelchair. So accidental deaths due to falling is the leading cause of accidental death for people over the age of 75 at a level that exceeds even what we see for accidental overdose for people under 65. And I think most people are probably now aware that accidental death due to overdose has become the most common cause of accidental death for people under 65, eclipsing even automotive accidents. So with all of that said as the background, frailty and sarcopenia are an enormous problem, and not just because of what they do showing up on death certificates, but because of how much they rob people of health span. So yeah. even if it doesn't kill you, it can easily ruin the last decade of your life. So with all that said, the antidote to this is to have as much muscle as possible, to be as strong as possible, to be as fit as possible. I make this joke all the time, but it's true. In the entire, I mean, how many people have existed, Sam? Do we have a, it's like, there's 8 billion now. How many billion were there before us? Isn't it about another? I think it's about 110 billion. Okay. I'm willing to bet, and I, I don't know how we could ever verify this, but my bet would be in the entire history of that 100 billion people, I would bet that no one in the final days of their life said, I wish I had less muscle. Mm -hmm. I wish I was less strong. It, it's simply not possible. So protein intake is an essential component of maintaining muscle mass. And of course, resistance training is as well. So to your question, can a person who morally or philosophically doesn't want to consume meat or who doesn't want to consume animal protein still you know, avoid sarcopenia? I think the answer is yes, but they have to acknowledge that they're in for a harder ride, meaning they're going to have to work harder at eating than maybe you or I do mm. if we're willing to consume meat and animal products. Yeah, on, on this issue of sparing muscle mass, I mean, so there's this, um, I guess, two questions. Well, one actually has a, a potential, poses a potential puzzle with respect to evolution. So when you just stop eating, when you start fasting and, and even start starving, uh, and you rely on your fat stores, yeah, as evolution has permitted, why doesn't that reliance spare muscle systematically until you lose all your fat. Because I mean, my understanding is if you, if you start fasting, there is some considerable risk that you, you are going to be losing lean muscle mass during that fast. Why is that? It seems like evolution would have recognized that, that more muscle is generally better for all sorts of things. And the fat store has been 
put there for a reason to be utilized in, uh, under just these circumstances. So why, why doesn't it just spare muscle systematically? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, below a certain calorie threshold, we will use protein for energy. So for example, if, if you went on a thousand calorie a day fast, but that thousand calories was 250 grams of protein, right? So 250 grams of protein is about a thousand calories. Mm. You'd lose weight, but you'd probably lose muscle as well. So, so, so why is that? Well, first of all, the body does have a pretty remarkable tool to prevent the complete emaciation of muscle, and that is ketosis. So earlier I mentioned glycogen, which is the storage form of glucose. So we can store, I don't know, somebody your size or my size, Sam, uh, we could probably store 400 grams of carbohydrates. So you could probably put 300 grams of glucose into your muscles. So that's about 1,200 calories. And you can put another 100 into your liver. And by itself, if you never made any other tweak to the system, that's like a day's worth of energy. Obviously, lots of times when we need to go more than a day without eating, as, as you know, sort of our ancestors at least did. So what you don't want to do at that point is immediately start tapping muscle. Because if you did, you would break down muscle in a, in a really rapid fashion. So in other words, if we broke down muscle for amino acids and sent those amino acids to the liver to undergo a process called gluconeogenesis, we would make glucose out of the muscle. Mm. I'd have to do the math on it. I've never done it. But I think it would be just a matter of a week or so until you'd be completely broken down. Mm. So while that is happening somewhat, it's more happening because we are not providing new amino acids for the muscle protein synthesis. So we constantly break down muscle and replace it partially with amino acids that we already have break, broken off muscle and partially with new amino acids that we're eating. So it, it's actually a very, the only way you can tease this out, by the way, in research is to do labeled studies. So you give people amino acids that have tracers on them. Yeah. And then you can distinguish between how much of the muscle protein synthesis is coming from the exogenous amino acids versus the endogenous amino acids. And what you realize is it's actually a pool of both. So I don't know if I'm making sense to the listener. I, I think you understand what I'm saying. But basically, in a form of starvation, you've taken away half of your amino acid pool, which is the exogenous pool. Mm. And you're only able to then rely on the endogenous pool for muscle protein synthesis. And that's why you will experience muscle wasting. But that's far better because at least you're not using muscle to then make glucose via gluconeogenesis. That would be a catastrophic problem. Mm. So I guess what your question is, is why hasn't the body figured out a way to undergo muscle protein synthesis without exogenous amino acids? But honestly, I think that's sort of like asking, why do we need food? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's touch this final topic under nutrition of, of fasting and time-restricted eating, because I know you've experimented a lot with this personally, and many people are interested in this as just a, a way of reducing caloric intake, I mean, just shrinking the time window in which you eat as a strategy for not not living with this with a toxic surplus of calories. What are your thoughts on this now? And I guess obviously it connects with a certain strand of research in on the topic of longevity, where caloric restriction has, I think, across you know every species in which it's been looked at, shown to be correlated with longevity. 
How do you think about this now? So I guess I would just sort of put this all in the context of the broader problem, right? So if the problem is, what do you do in the case when an individual is overnourished, which I think is just kind of a technical way to say they have too much stored energy and it is exceeding the point of utility and it's now that energy is spilling over into other areas and causing problems. So that fat is spilling into the space between their organs. It's getting into their muscles directly. It's getting into their pancreas and it's toxic, right? It's inflammatory. It increases insulin resistance, which exacerbates the problem, all of these things. The solution to that is reduction of energy input, right? So you have to create a caloric deficit in that situation. Broadly speaking, there are three ways to do that. The first is to directly, day in and day out, minute by minute, think about reducing intake. So that's the example I think of, uh, you know, what what we've just been talking about, right? It's like, okay, I've been, you know, I eat three thousand calories a day, and I I need to I need to lose fat. I have to reduce that to twenty five hundred. I'm going to track those macros, and make and count up to twenty five hundred calories a day. The other way to do it is dietary restriction. Come up with a restrictive diet and focus on you know, excluding as many things as possible. And if you, the more restrictive that diet, the more likely you are to achieve energy imbalance. So if you, know, if you go on the no lettuce diet, it's not going to be very restrictive. You're not going to mm. lose weight. But if you go on the potato only diet, you almost assuredly will lose weight. Now, the third strategy is what you're talking about, which is time restriction. Just create a narrow enough window in which to eat such that at some point it, the window becomes narrow enough that you're going to create an energy deficit. So, so calorie restriction is the direct way to do it. Dietary and time restriction are the indirect ways to do it. I was sort of, I would say probably six, seven years ago of the, of the view, because we really didn't have the data at the time that, that thought there was something beneficial to time restriction beyond the caloric deficit. Mm -hmm. In other words, I believed that the act of not eating for 18 to 20 hours per day in and of itself brought a metabolic benefit independent of the caloric deficit. I would say that that view has been refuted by at least two studies in the past three years, two years, that have, when controlling for intake, demonstrated two things. The first is that actually all of the benefits of time-restricted feeding seem to come down to the reduction in calories. Mm -hmm. But a more important finding has been that there may actually be a downside to time-restricted feeding, which is that many people are incapable of consuming sufficient enough protein in that window. And while they do mm. lose weight, they may disproportionately be losing muscle. Interesting. Just to backtrack for a second. So the restriction of specific foods, do you think there's any metabolic magic there where you, you hear someone who's you know, you know, on a, an all-meat diet, say, and they're, they're losing weight you know, versus any other strategy? If you're emphasizing one macro over another, do you think it isn't, at the end of the day, just a matter of calories in with respect to you know, energy balance? Is it just is, is there metabolism working above the mere caloric physics that accounts for weight loss on certain restricted diets? I don't think so. 
And I do think now we're clearly, if we go back to the way you posed the questions at the outside of our discussion vis-a-vis nutrition, mm. I think we are clearly in the area where we need to have a lot of humility and, and just acknowledge we're now speaking in the unknowns. But, but my intuition, based on the existing body of literature, is that from an energy balance perspective, a calorie is a calorie. Right. So I do not believe that we are, because the only way that it's not is to say, you are impacting energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. So does the body metabolize these calories different from those calories? And, and, and the short answer, I guess, is yes, there's a little bit of that. So there's something called the thermogenic effect of food, where we require more energy to energize, uh, to break down protein than we do carbohydrates and fats. Right. And so there is a slight discount metabolically that comes from that. Do I think that that is why a carnivore diet being basically, I don't know, it depends on what kind of meat you consume, but a carnivore diet could easily be one-third protein, two-thirds fat from a macro perspective. Do I think that that explains the profound weight loss that people experience when they experience it on a carnivore diet? I don't think so. I think that really comes down to just reduced intake. But this gets to an important point, right? Which is the point of satiety. And this is the hardest thing to study because you know, if you're doing a really well-controlled study, you actually want to feed people prescribed amounts of food, thereby ignoring or negating the benefits or disadvantages of a change in satiety. But in the real world, satiety might be the single most important factor in determining long-term compliance, right? Right. I, I, I don't believe that most people can exist in a state of perpetual hunger, day in and day out. Clearly some people can, but I don't think that's the norm. And therefore, whatever is at the root of the societal energy imbalance we have must have at its basis something to do with satiety. Unless you believe people are just mindless eating machines. And I, I'm just not sure I'm ready to fully concede hmm. that point yet. So, do you happen to know what the experience is of people who have taken the caloric restriction principle to a proper extreme? I mean, I know there are, there are food scientists and doctors and, and a few other people who have decided that the data are in. We know what happens to mice. We know what happens to yeast. If you dial down the calories to the absolute minimum maintenance level, mm-hmm. you increase lifespan by an enormous amount. And so there are people walking around, you know, I, I don't know what their caloric ceiling is, maybe something like 1,500 calories. Um, they're, they're, they're living on a diet that abstemious for years at a stretch. Is their experience one of being perpetually hungry, or do they, do they reset and experience kind of a normal level of satiety? I haven't studied them. I, I know anecdotally a little bit just from, I have you know, a couple of colleagues who have even gone and spoken at their conferences, because there are societies of CR out there. There's mm-hmm. caloric restriction societies of people who do exactly what you're describing. You know, I think it's probably closer to 1,800 to 2,000 calories per day. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, I, I think it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's two interesting questions there, right? So the, the, at least two, right? So one is, what is their subjective state of existence? Are they constantly thinking about food? I will say this, I've definitely spoken to a lot of bodybuilders, and that's about the amount of calories they're on during a cutting phase. Yeah. And Sam, I've never spoken to one of them who hasn't said that they don't want to end their life during that phase. Yeah, yeah. So now again, you could argue, well, they're only doing that for, you know, 12 weeks. 
and maybe that's not long enough to acclimate. And they're also asking a lot of themselves because they have to exercise during that period of time. So, so that's not an apples to apples comparison. But that's question one. I think the more important question, in as much as it's academically interesting, is does the draconian step that they're taking translate to an improvement in lifespan and health span for the species of interest, which is humans? So everything you said is true, right? We know that yeast and worms and fruit flies and rodents, at least in a laboratory environment, will live longer under CR conditions. But we don't know if that's true for humans who live in the real world. And as I devote probably half a chapter to in the book, when I go through the NIH Wisconsin NIA experiment with rhesus monkeys, it turned out to not even be clear that CR was beneficial there. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned alcohol as a fourth macro here. I was going to ask you about it under the heading of lifestyle, but maybe we'll just discuss it here. Is maybe it's been 10, 15 years since the emergence of a a kind of cottage industry in hopeful articles about the health benefits of alcohol, uh, some of which I think in retrospect were sponsored by um, the the alcohol industry. Uh, It's not to say that uh, a conflict of interest always proves that the science is bad, but what do we know about the health impacts of alcohol? And perhaps we can boil it down to kind of a personal punchline. I mean, just how, how is it that you approach this yourself personally? What have you decided is the, the uh, risk-reward trade-off that you're comfortable with in, in your own life? Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you my answer for me, but then I can sort of explain it or defend it or explain why it might be illogical. So, so my view is I do continue to consume alcohol, but I think from a, from a risk standpoint, the dose matters. And from a benefit standpoint, the quality matters. So what, is it, what do I mean by that? So one of my heuristics is I don't drink on airplanes because I've yet to be on an airplane that serves really good alcohol. Mm-hmm. So alcohol itself, ethanol, the molecule, is really, really toxic. So I'm only going to allow myself to ingest that toxin if it comes with some enormous other benefit, which is the rest of the packaging is really good. So, you know, I'm a real tequila snob and I mean, I'm not going to drink Patron because it sucks, right? (laughs) Like it's got to be really good tequila or mezcal or really good red wine or really good whatever I'm going to drink. So if I go to the store and buy a bottle of wine and I open it and it doesn't taste incredible, I dump it down the sink, even if I paid $40 for it. Like I'm not you know, so, so that's kind of how I think about it, which is, this is not good for me, but if I limit how much I consume, I will make it not terribly bad, but I better get much more upside than the downside. So just on that point of it not being good for you, so has the research unraveled that seemed to show that there were benefits, I think, with, with respect to all-cause yeah, so mortality with- in drinking a few drinks? Yeah, so what you're referring to is the so-called J curve. Yeah, so 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 a lot of the epidemiology of ethanol points back to this idea of a J curve, which is that so so it's really a, a you know kind of a so so think of a you know a J right. So at the lowest level, so going from left to right, so that's so left to right is increasing alcohol consumption, and vertically is mortality, right? Yeah. So a J curve suggests that at zero alcohol, there's, you know, some mortality. And as you increase alcohol, mortality goes down until it hits a minimum and then starts to really go up. Right. 
And if that were the case, then you'd say, yes, moderate alcohol must be the lowest mortality. And at first blush, the epidemiology would suggest that, but of course, it's not an accident that I probably devote half a chapter to understanding nutritional epidemiology. You have to be able to look at the fine print and understand what the confounding variables are. And there are many, right? So the, the, the most important ones to understand are the bias against people who drink nothing. So what do we know about people who completely abstain from alcohol? There are a couple things. One is they're often people who have had enormous complications from too much drinking alcohol in the first place. Right. Secondly, there's a negative survivor bias that goes into those studies. It's sort of because, in other words, all the people who have died from alcohol consumption keep getting taken out of the analysis. Now, we don't, you know, so, so that's sort of like saying we're going to study the effect of smoking, but every time somebody dies of lung cancer, we take them out of the analysis. Now, smoking is much more potent at moderate doses than alcohol is, I suspect. So that's why I don't think we see a J curve in smoking, at least I'm not aware of it. Mm. Uh, whereas we do see one in ethanol. Where I think I feel more confident that the J-curve does not truly exist is the Mendelian randomization. And I, have you covered that on previous podcasts? No. Is it worth maybe a minute on it? Sure. Yeah. So Mendelian randomization is a, is a really brilliant mathematical technique that basically allows us to use the random sorting of genes to do random experiments that we couldn't otherwise do. So the way this would work in this case, and there, I just read two papers on this in the last month, so they're, it's kind of top of mind. We know that there are certain genes that basically prevent people from drinking alcohol. Um, so I'm sure people listening to this, maybe even someone listening to this has, go, has these genes, but knows people. For example, it's very common in Asians where there's a gene that interferes with the metabolism of ethanol and People who have this gene accumulate a kind of nasty byproduct of ethanol that creates an awful flushing sensation. So it's a remarkable, basically, incentive to never drink. In fact, there's a drug that blocks the same enzyme that is given to people or people take who are trying not to drink. Mm -hmm. It's called antabuse. And people would take that drug and then if they went out and drank, they would feel so bad they would immediately stop. Okay. There are, so there are several different genes that produce that type of a phenotype. Those genes are randomly distributed in the population and they seem to have no bearing on cancer and heart disease and all these other things. So what we can do is we can look at the scattering of those genes and see if those genes do indeed predict all-cause mortality th and th through alcohol. And the, and the answer turns out to be no, it doesn't. In other words, the Mendelian randomization shows a monotonic increase in risk as the prevalence of those genes disappears. So those genes paradoxically are protective because the more concentrated those genes are, the more inhibition you have towards consuming alcohol, the lower your all-cause mortality. Mm. So I think when you when you and this is just part of it. So if you look at the Mendelian randomization, if you scrutinize the the epidemiology more closely. And by the way, when you look at some of the randomized control trials that have been done, which are actually really lousy, but they, they do give you a little bit of controlled information, my overall synthesis still comes back to 
I believe that ethanol by itself is quite definitively toxic. Where there might be some wiggle room that I'm not sure of is would red wine specifically, which has probably more antioxidants than any other form of ethanol, at some dose provide a net benefit, probably still a low dose. All that said, you know, Sam, there's one other thing I come back to, which is another thing that I think disproportionately puts alcohol in a positive light and probably shouldn't be ignored is the pattern of alcohol consumption. So there's something referred to as the Mediterranean alcohol consumption pattern, which basically says, look, a guy sitting alone in his apartment pounding beer versus you and I and our family sitting together having alcohol over a nice dinner, those are probably two very different things, even if normalized for the amount of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the social component and the relaxation that comes from alcohol is undoubtedly positive. And so again, you now include that on the ledger, which says, okay, in what environment am I doing it? And what are the pro-social benefits that come from it? And, uh, you know, there are for many people, alcohol has no pro-social benefits. It's an awful molecule. So I know this is not a really nice answer because it's way more nuanced, but I think unfortunately that's just the nature of something like this. Yeah. So if, if I'm um, extrapolating from what you said initially, it sounds like you, you still drink, you limit yourself to drinking only really when it's worth it, i.e. The, the, it's just a high quality experience all around. But what would you cap, what are you comfortable saying with respect to what is too much at any quality? I think more than two is probably too much. And I also, under no circumstance, want to be drinking more than three hours before bed because mm -hmm. the effect of ethanol on sleep is pretty significant. You mean, so you mean you're, less than three hours before bed? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I want more than three hours of space between last drink and bed, and I would like to not have more than two drinks in a day. That, right. Those would be the other boundaries I'd put on it. Right. Um, I'm, I, I don't know how alcohol metabolism changes with age, but I'm finding that I now get headaches, mm -hmm. I would say, 50% of the time after, yeah, it could even be one drink, but certainly two drinks, it, it seems to be now like a coin toss, and that never used to happen. I mean, this is not, this is, I'm not even talking about a hangover, I'm talking about a headache the night of drinking more than one or two drinks, uh, or, you know, one or two drinks. Do we know anything about how one's ability to metabolize alcohol changes? You know, I haven't looked at that specifically, although experientially and anecdotally, I completely agree with you, both my own experience and that of my patients. You know, we, you sort of can joke about it and just contrast like what you could have easily drank in a night at college, right? Compared to now. Yeah. But, but I agree completely. Just the other night, I think it was Sunday night, I, I had two larger glasses of wine. And again, I, I didn't drink right before bed. It was, you know, it was relatively early in the evening. And I woke up the next morning with, with a headache, yeah. which again, I was like, I couldn't, you know, I was like, did I not drink enough water? I couldn't figure it out, but I was like, clearly I went too far. That, that wasn't, you know, that, that, that exceeded the load. Whereas, yeah, in the, in the past, I, I wouldn't have even noticed that. So, um, I mean, I, it, it certainly wouldn't be impossible to speculate that the enzymes that are responsible for alcohol metabolism are expressed in lower amounts as we age. Mm. Okay, so closing out, this section on diet and nutrition, I just want to just touch fasting uh, once again, however briefly, because I know you experimented with it a lot in the past personally. 
do you still fast? And, and what do you think about fasting as a, a way of improving one's health? I mean, is it, what's the state of the research on it? Is it more psychological than, than real? I mean, just as a way of resetting one's dietary priorities? What, what do you think about fasting? And, and I guess whatever downside you might have experienced with respect to sparing muscle. And we're going to talk about exercise next. So the short answer is I, I don't fast like I used to. I used to be very regimented. So I would do a seven-day water-only fast once a quarter and then a three-day water-only fast on the alternate months. So basically every month I was doing a fast and four times a year it was a very long fast, sometimes up to 10 days of water-only. Hmm. Again, the belief system here was one that could never be validated. So everything I was doing, I was doing on the, on the leap of faith principle, which was that that degree of fasting would have such a benefit in terms of autophagy, clamping down on cellular senescence, reducing inflammation, you know, all of the sort of hallmarks of aging that we can think of, that there would be kind of a great reset every quarter and then a mini reset every month. But the problem is we have no biomarkers for all of those things I've mentioned. We're like, I don't have an autology biomarker. I don't have an mTOR biomarker. I don't really have, you know, ways to intuit senescence. So it was just like, you know, truly a leap of faith and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to extrapolate from what we knew about mice. But there was a drawback, which was over the span of about two and a half years, I probably lost 12, I think 12 pounds of muscle. And this was not through a lack of training. I mean, right. I was still training incredibly hard, but it, you know, every time you do one of those long fasts, you're going to lose muscle. And it, it gets a little harder and harder each time to pull yourself out of that deficit. So at least for me, that did not seem like a viable plan. And, you know, I've instead focused, you know, more on trying to maintain and actually get that muscle back and maintain it as opposed to, you know, taking it, taking slashes at it. Now, that said, I still think there is an absolute time and a place for fasting. And I think that for a patient who is, is really overnourished and metabolically unhealthy, and who has sufficient or reasonable amounts of muscle mass, and they can afford to lose some of it. Uh, I think fasting is a great tool. I really do wish we had better biomarkers around the, the core hallmarks of aging. And this, we'll probably end up talking about this again, because if we're going to talk about metformin, if we're going to talk about rapamycin, if we're going to talk about anything that touches what is referred to as gyro protection. So any intervention that is geared towards targeting a hallmark of aging, as opposed to a specific disease, we have to acknowledge the greatest limitation we have in this field is we don't have biomarkers. Mm -hmm. So absent that, I think, I think the precautionary principle is, is necessary. And I think one has to, to be thoughtful about it. If I do go back to fasting, which I'm not opposed to, it would not be at the frequency that I did it before. Actually, one other topic we touched very briefly, but I just want to get a clear statement from you on it. So sugar has been much demonized, perhaps appropriately, of late. I mean, Gary Taubes in particular has written some seminal articles and books on the topic, pretty much saying that just reducing sugar is an intrinsic good, and there's, you know, sugar really in any form is um, or, or in any quantity, so sugar being sucrose or you know perhaps worse fructose, it's just bad for us, and it's uh, you see so you you just want to avoid it, and you're you're inevitably going to get 
more than you need, even spending all your time avoiding it. What's your belief about all of that? Where does sugar stand in um, on the list of things you eat or want to avoid eating? Boy, I got to tell you, I, this is another one of those areas where my confidence has decreased as opposed to increase mm -hmm. over time. So Bob Kaplan used to say, uh, and I'm sure he's paraphrasing somebody else, the further you get from shore, the deeper the water gets. There, there's sugar, and my understanding of sugar and its, its, its effects on the human body are a, a classic example of that problem. I don't doubt for a moment, both based on the data and based on any semblance of experiential input, that eating sugar in an unconstrained way is problematic, right? So sugar is not you know, if you're eating sugar in the foods that it shows up in, it's not a nutrient-dense source, and it does tend to increase appetite. And there's very good biochemical evidence as, as to why that's the case. Why do humans and animals who are eating high amounts of sucrose, which is just half glucose, half fructose, why do they tend to overeat? And I, th you know, I do, I write about this a little bit in the book, Sam. I talk a little bit about the biochemistry of fructose metabolism. It's very complicated. And the version that ultimately landed in the book is much simplified, but the net of it is the following. When you metabolize glucose, you immediately, the cell immediately starts getting ATP, which is the energy currency out of it. That's not true for fructose. When you metabolize fructose, the cell actually has to go into an energy debt because of the speed of the chemical reaction. And if you're metabolizing a little bit of fructose, like you eat an apple, it doesn't really matter. If you metabolize a lot of fructose, like you're drinking a soda, hmm. that triggers a signal to the brain that says there's actually an energy deficit, which of course there isn't because you just mainlined a ton of glucose and fructose. But at the cellular level, ATP goes down. So the cellular energy gauge points to empty and the body says, I need more. Now, again, this appears to be dose and vehicle related. Liquids seem to be much worse than solids, and obviously concentrated sources of sucrose tend to be much worse than fructose as it, as it exists in nature. So the question is, on a controlled basis, is, is, is sucrose particularly damaging? And I, I, I'm not convinced that the answer is yes, right? Like, I, I, again, I know it's very in vogue to, 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 to condemn sucrose as the cause of every modern problem. But the truth of it is, beyond its effect on energy balance, I'm not sure that's right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But I, but I could be wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I just want to acknowledge like, how much I still have to read on this and how difficult it is to extrapolate from mechanistic studies to human studies and, 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 and everything in between. So, I still think there's a precautionary principle that says all things equal, foods that come with lots of sugar in them are generally crap foods. And as such, you're probably better off not eating them. But at the same time, and this is a whole other tangent I did not go into in the book that's also very interesting is what's the alternative, right? So are we convinced that aspartame, sucralose, saccharin are better? which are simply non-nutritive sweetening mm. agents. And that gets into a whole other topic that we'll probably save for another day. Yeah. Okay, so exercise, uh, you have 
strong thoughts on the matter, and you have a quite a personal history of impressive uh, and even heroic feats of exercise. You've been a, um, I mean, this is all something people can discover both on your podcast and in your book, but perhaps summarize your, the extremes to which you've gone as a fitness fanatic, uh, and then maybe summarize how you, ha- how you approach it at this point in your life with respect to just trying to maximize your, your health and well-being. You know, I would say basically from about the, probably the age of 13 to my early 40s, I've always been focused on some sort of extreme athletic goal and have trained very, very hard for it. Much harder than would ever be deemed reasonable based on the fact that I wasn't making a living doing it. So when I was youngest, you know, that was boxing for probably five years. And then later in life, it became everything from swimming, you know, pool swimming to ultra distance swimming, ultra distance cycling, you know, sort of short distance time trial cycling. So there's always been some sort of, you know, obsessive thing that I've done. And then Basically, in my early 40s, so I guess, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, probably around 42, I just decided I'd kind of had enough because at that point, I really was running out of the bandwidth to do that kind of training. That was, you know, we're talking about 20, 20 to 25 hours a week of training was going into this type of endeavor. And I, I sort of just had enough of it. And, and, started to just exercise for the sake of exercise, Mm. went through a period of feeling really lost. So I was exercising, but for the first time in my life without a specific goal. And in many ways, that's effectively what allowed me to kind of come up with a a new way to think about this, which is, well, first of all, that's how most people exist. I mean, most people aren't actually training to, you know, break some record or do something. So most of us are just exercising for the sake of exercising, but we need a goal. And I think the goal should be to maximize our experience in the final decade of our lives. This, this place I call the marginal decade. Mm. And the model that I came with is, is that of, a, of, of, of something called the centenarian decathlon, which of course doesn't mean you have to make it to being a centenarian, but the idea is like, what are the most important physical things you want to be able to do in the last decade of your life? How do you train to be able to do that knowing that there is an inevitable loss of strength, stability, cardiorespiratory fitness. You know, all of the elements that constitute physical health are going to be declining and they, they start to decline quite precipitously in your mid-70s. So knowing that, how do you back out of that to make sure that, you, that your glider has enough runway? Right, so what are the components? Next? So all, all of the, the extreme exercising you described was more on the side of cardiovascular fitness and, and endurance. And I know that resistance training is increasingly essential to how you conceive of what, what people need to do to stay healthy. Were you doing a lot of resistance training in addition to all the endurance stuff when you were younger, or did that come later? No, I actually did. And I, I, I even when I was young, I power lifted when I was in high school mm-hmm. and was, I mean, infinitely stronger than I am today. My, my youngest son, who's six, is obsessed with coming into the gym with me. So every day I'm in the gym, he's in there and he won't stop asking me, dad, can you lift 500 pounds? Right. Can you lift 400 pounds? And I, he's just, he's getting tired of hearing me say the same thing, which is not anymore, not anymore. I used to be able to do that. I, I, but yes, no, I, I had a, a pretty long history of strength training, but 
in different phases of my life, it went away. So when I was swimming 28 hours a week, that, when I was marathon swimming, that's all I did because I just had to get those hours in. I had no strength training. As a cyclist, I was doing strength training, but really only for the legs, nothing for the upper body. And you know, I looked like a T-Rex as mm -hmm. a result of it. So what I'm doing now from a strength training perspective is very different because it's the first time where I'm really focused on a different set of goals, which you know, aren't really about necessarily you know, how big my arms are or even how strong I am in an absolute one rep sense, but much more about the types of strength that are going to be necessary to hopefully make me a highly functional 80-year-old. Mm. Okay, so let's see if we can zero in on some generic, uncontroversial advice, knowing that every person will have their own idiosyncrasies and gifts and genetically and otherwise or restrictions. What would you recommend to somebody in their 40s, say, or 50s who wants to be the healthiest uh, and most capable version of themselves should they be lucky enough to survive into their, their 70s and 80s and beyond? What do they need to do now? Well, I mean, this is, there, there's some, you know, I think good news and bad news here, right? The, the good news is in the discussion of exercise, we, we have the promise of more health than any other tool we're talking about, right? So we just spent some time talking about nutrition, uh, and that's great. Lots of, lots of stuff there, and you know, nutrition can have a, a significant impact on your health. We probably won't get to sleep today because there's so much of it to talk about, but if we do, we're going to certainly see that fixing your sleep is important and lots of medications that can make a difference. Nothing moves the needle as much as exercise. So if a person presents with the problem statement, I want to live my longest, best life, how should I think about it or what can I do? The answer is exercise, exercise, and, and more exercise. It's even Which, a stronger effect than not smoking, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And that is kind of one of the points I was going to make, right? Which is the reason that we understand this is the data are unambiguous about the effects of not exercise per se, because that's a slightly harder thing to study, but the integral of exercise. And that's really important, right? We have great integrals of training. VO2 max is an amazing integral of how much hard cardiorespiratory training a person does. Muscle mass and strength are great integrals of how much strength training a person has done to that point in time. And when we look at those outcomes, when we look at high VO2 max, high muscle mass, high strength, and we contrast those individuals with say, uh, same sex, same age peers, the gap between them in all-cause mortality is chasms wider than what you just said, comparing smokers to non-smokers, hmm. comparing people with high blood pressure to non-normal blood to normal blood pressure, comparing diabetics to non-diabetics, comparing those with kidney failure to those without kidney failure. All of those things are bad, make no mistake about it. But the gap between those people is much narrower than the gap between the strong and the weak, the fit and the unfit. So that, that's why mm. we know this to be the case, is that all of the work that goes into being strong, all of the work that goes into being fit, 
yields these direct health span benefits, but also these enormous lifespan benefits. Because all those data we just I just rattled off are all you know all cause mortality is just a lifespan question. But what if we so, partition the the strong and the fit here? Because there there are many people who are pure examples of one kind of fitness. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who are who do nothing but run. Say they they never touch a weight, and they 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 don't have much muscle mass, even in their legs, really. And they're just yet you know their cardiorespiratory fitness is extremely high. Uh, and presumably, if they had their VO two max tested, it would be you know that 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 integral would be, be very high. impressive. And then there are the people who just work out in the gym. They really never do cardio. They, they presumably they're getting some you know elevated heart rate interval style training when they when they train weights you know very hard but they're i don't know what would what we would expect about their VO2 max but it might be terrible and yet they're they have they've got a, a tremendous amount of of lean muscle mass uh, and they're quite strong how would you generalize about those two populations i would say that each of them are better than people who have neither and neither of them are as good as people who have both and it's not an either or right so one need not be that extreme that you can only do one so if i think back to where i was 10 years ago 8 years ago my vo2 max was 70 milliliters per kilogram per minute which you know, the 97th percentile for my age at the time would have been 55. So I'm 15 points above the 97th percentile. Mm. But I wasn't at that per- I wasn't at the 90th percentile for strength. And uh, maybe, you know, I certainly wasn't at the 97th percentile for strength and muscle mass. So the question is, if I'm optimizing for being a cyclist, yeah, I was probably doing the right thing. But if I'm actually optimizing to be a centenarian decathlete, I was spending way too much time on cardio. I could have easily spent less time on cardio, let my VO2 max come down to the high 50s and take that extra time and put it into strength and uh, stability training, movement training, all these other things that are also difficult to measure and quantify in terms of lifespan benefits, but have more health span benefits, then I would have produced a more well-rounded phenotype. And similarly, you know, you know, if you take a person who's off the charts in terms of strength and muscle mass, well, they can probably afford to sacrifice some of that to bring the the cardio station up to speed. Hmm. So, what generically, what would you recommend with respect to training here? I mean, there's maybe list the the different flavors of of exercise, and uh, I don't know if you want to weight them with respect to priorities, and, and we might bring in zone two training here, which is is something that is increasingly referred to out there in the, in the wild. What is it, and where does it fit in? So I usually start this question, Sam, by asking the person the question, which is how much time are you willing to put into exercise? And I always differentiate this from sports, right? So I'm really asking for dedicated training time. So if like if we were doing this discussion and you were a tennis player and you said, well, you know, I play tennis a few hours a week and I play golf a few hours a week and, you know, just tell me how to tweak that. I would say, all right, well, I think it's awesome that you play tennis and you play golf. And hopefully when you're playing golf, you're walking the holes, you're not taking a cart. I'd say keep all that up, but that doesn't count as exercise. Those are your sports and you exercise to be able to do those things. And at least in the case of tennis, you're really getting some pretty good exercise. But 
tell me outside of that how many hours you're willing to put into training. And whatever that number is, I then have a formula basically for how I would divide it up. And then I have modifications of the formula based on your starting point. So basically, it sounds like this You tell me you're willing to spend X amount of hours training. I'm going to say roughly half of that should be strength and stability, half of that should be cardio. Of the cardio, 80% of it should be zone two, 20% of it should be VO2 max training. Of the strength, 80% of it should be, of the strength and stability, 80% of it should be strength, 20% of it should be stability. And we would make tweaks on that. It could be instead of 50-50, we could go 60-40 or 40-60 if you were disproportionately coming in with a much higher abundance of one over the other, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's just deal with the round number of, let's say someone has an hour a day they're willing to devote to training, and let's say they suffer the predicament that, that many people suffer in, in modern life, which is that they're basically sedentary with respect to their, their occupation. Let's prioritize walking so that they're, they're not as sedentary as they, as they might be. But beyond that, let's leave all sports aside and just say that you have an hour a day to work with uh, and the person's not getting a ton of exercise elsewhere. Okay, so we're coming into this where we are in desperate need of both strength, stability, and cardio, and we're going to posit that they're going to walk for me outside of this, right? Yeah. Okay, so then, yep, this would be an equal split, roughly 50-50. I'm going to say I want three hours of that week to be zone two training. We'll talk about what that is in a second. 30 minutes of that training a week, I want to be interval training that is VO2 max style. So three to four minute work with three to four minute rest following. So work to rest one to one ratio. And then three and a half hours, the other half time of the week, I want to be strength training. And probably what I would do is have that be, so, so let's talk about how to operationalize that. I'm going to have this person lifting weights three days a week mm -hmm. at about an hour a pop. And they're going to do a whole body workout each time, upper body, lower body split. And the other four days, they're going to do cardio. And one of those days will be slightly longer. One of those days will be slightly shorter with some intervals. Great. So let's define whatever terms would be unclear to most people. So zone two, certainly we have to define, I guess we should define what constitutes VO2 max interval training with respect to, I would imagine, heart rate. and on the topic of resistance training, uh, I guess you could get a little granular with respect to what you you really recommend there, and and is it possible to do all of it with with body weight, or is it by definition weight training we're talking about? Uh, I'll just start with the last question because yeah. I've kind of forgotten the yeah. first ones. But for most people, Sam, body weight is not going to be sufficient. Uh, so where it might be sufficient is for someone who's a lot older and who's just starting out, you know, for example, doing step-ups with body weight mm -hmm. is probably a great place to start. And certainly even for someone who's young, who's just learning the movements. Uh, I, I mean, a step-up with a slow eccentric step down is complicated enough with no weight. So there's certainly a time and place for it. But for the most part, we do need resistance because we need mass more than our own body weight. And the, and the reason here is we're really trying to offset one of the hallmarks of aging at the level of the muscle. So the most obvious sign of aging at the level of the muscle is 
the atrophy of the type 2 muscle fiber. So if you think about these two muscle fiber types we have, we have type 1 and type 2 fibers. The type 1 fibers are the slow twitch fibers. They're very slow to fatigue, but they're not very powerful. So they have lots of endurance, but they're not very powerful. Conversely, we have type 2 muscle fibers, fast twitch muscle fibers. They're very fast to fatigue. They're very powerful, but they're the ones that start going away in your 30s. And our goal is to hang on to those as much as possible. And you can only hang on to those with significant resistance. Because of the way muscle fibers work, if you only present the body with a low amount of resistance, the type 1 muscle fiber will always default in and do the work hmm. because of its metabolic advantage in doing it. So the only way you can tax and therefore retain and prevent or at least slow the atrophy of the type 2 fiber is you have to lift something heavy. Is it purely a matter of resistance or does it imply explosiveness too with respect to just actually how you move the weight? No, it doesn't, it doesn't require explosive speed. So lift, if you, if, in fact, if you look at a power lifter, right, they're actually lifting very, very slowly. They're at such a high, I mean, they are truly, you know, the term powerlifting is very misleading because power is speed times force. Mm. And the truth of it is a power lifter is not demonstrating maximum power. They are, they are demonstrating maximum strength. Right. Power lifting is really what we should call weightlifting because Olympic weightlifters are indeed showing you maximum power because they're at that sweet spot of maximum strength and speed. But no, to answer your question, Sam, speed is not necessary to recruit the type 2 muscle fiber, but a high type 2 muscle fiber is required to generate speed. Right. Okay, so then I know, I think another question you asked was, let me, let's define zone two and VO2 max. So zone two has a very, very technical definition. I go to describe it in great lengths in the book. I won't do it here. It basically comes down to lactate production and mitochondrial efficiency. I think for the practical definition of it, zone two is the place where from a rate of perceived exertion, you are just on the cusp of not wanting to speak, but still able to speak. That's how you know you're in zone two. Mm -hmm. And that's a better definition than any of the heart rate definitions in my view. Although I do tend to provide people with some heart rate guidance. For example, you know, a great formula, Phil Maffetone's formula is take 180 and subtract your age mm -hmm. and then be willing to adjust up or down by 10 beats per minute. So it's 180 minus your age plus or minus 10 probably has you in zone two, but that's your starting place. If a person knows their maximum heart rate, you know, there's also fact, there's also formulas where you can discount for maximum heart rate. But, but truthfully, I think just going off rate of perceived exertion is the way to do it. And what I like about that is it will vary from day to day as your rest and recovery do as well. So, you know, my zone two yesterday, gosh, was probably like 140 low one low 140s whereas my zone 2 on the two days before that was was sort of low to mid 130s to totally different you know i just felt mm -hmm. different but you know I i'm in a different spot so you don't want to be so myopically fixed on what the heart rate is you want to fix fixate more on the rpe in my case i'm always i'm checking lactate as well so i can you know really dial it in but that's not actually that necessary so then by definition zone 2 is not walking but it's, it could be hiking. It need not be actually running, right? I mean, like if you're elevating your heart rate, let's say to, to 130 and you're 50 years old, 
on a hike, that could be zone two, but it's unlikely to be a, a walk on level ground unless you're, I guess, speed walking, right? Correct. It's almost impossible to get walking there. In fact, even when I have a 50 to 60 pound pack on my back, I cannot get my heart rate high enough into zone two walking unless I'm walking up a hill. Right. But then, in which case, by the way, with that much weight on my back, I usually get out of zone two too quickly. So if I'm doing, if I'm using, I usually use a bike for zone two indoors on a trainer. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at a hotel, I'm often using a treadmill. And for me, the sweet spot is about three and a half miles per hour. So a reasonably brisk walk, but well short of, you know, a jog at about 15 degrees on the treadmill. Right. And that's generally what I advise people to do is pick your brisk walking speed and slowly ramp up the elevation until you get to that point of difficult to speak, but you, you can speak, you just don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And, and uh, VO2 max style interval training, what, what does that look like with respect to heart rate or any other marker? So again, VO2 max is really not done off heart rate. I think RPE, rate of perceived exertion, is the way to do it. Mm. And again, to be clear, VO2 max is a measurement that is the maximum amount of oxygen you can consume. But to increase that capacity, the, the, the literature suggests that the proper interval is an interval that varies somewhere between three and eight minutes at a rate of work to recovery of one to one. So the most intense would be three minutes, the least intense would be eight minutes. And I, I tend to do fours, is tend to be where I like to go, but that's probably just a, you know, a, a, a vestige of how I used to train in cycling was, was four minutes on, four minutes off, four mm -hmm. minutes on, four minutes off. And that four minutes on is as hard as I can go for four minutes, but it's clearly not all out, right? Because right. if it was all out, I'd be done in 20 seconds. So you have to learn how to kind of modulate your output to, to achieve that. And there are other ways to increase VO2 max, much shorter intervals that have become very popular, things like Tabata intervals where you go all out for 20 seconds and rest for 10, repeated for four minutes, that will increase VO2 max. It's just not as efficient at, as doing what I just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that, that would be like literally sprinting for, you know, you, you know you're, is that something that you would recommend or do you just see that you, you think doing something more analogous to four minutes makes more sense? Again, I, I think it just varies. Like I, I sort of think, you know, for someone who's really, really short on time, you know, maybe just doing the Tabatas is easier. I also think what people don't realize is Tabatas are really hard. Yeah. I think like to do them well, to really go to failure in those is, is you, know, you have to be really ready for it. There's no way to, there's no way to sugarcoat this. I, I do think that, that VO2 max training is, is probably the least pleasant of the training. But I also think that finding something you're willing to do matters a lot. So I, I tend to sort of point patients towards doing something that they enjoy, both in terms of the modality and the interval length. And, and so what do you do this on? Is this also a bike or is this like a, an assault bike or a treadmill? What do you, what do, you do it on? All sorts. I mean, I, I think uh, for me, my favorites are the, the stair climber is a mm -hmm. good one. Uh, riding my bike outdoors on a hill is probably my favorite. So there's a good hill not too far from my house that is at about the right grade 
like it's about 6%. So I can, I don't have to be out of the saddle and it's long enough that four minutes takes me to the top, like bottom to top is about four minutes. That, that would probably, those would be my favorite ways to do it. But again, you could, you could do it on anything. A rowing machine is pretty good as well. If you know how to row reasonably well, mm. you have to kind of have a reasonable technique to not hurt yourself when you're going to row at that intensity. Right. So I'm, I'm noticing that none of this cardiovascular training is really the same as what I always used to think of as cardiovascular training, which is higher than zone two, but not a VO2 max engaging interval sprint of any kind. So I just, I'm imagining what most people would experience if they're running you know, seven-minute miles or doing a similar classic cardiovascular exercise, is that just not on the menu for you? Or, or is it all of its benefits are captured by these other modes of training and it's just not as efficient as any of them? Or how do you think about that kind of training? Yeah, I think it depends on, it depends on what your goals are, right? So I, I think if, you're, if your goal is to run a marathon in, you know, three hours, you're going to have to get used to running that pace pretty well. But the truth of it is, by definition, your zone two needs to be pretty darn close to that pace. Mm -hmm. But you're going to do some training at a much higher pace for relatively short periods of time to basically lift your ceiling higher and higher and, and with it, drag the floor up. But I think what you're getting at is a good point, which is I think a lot of people end up doing a lot of junk exercise which is not bad. It's certain, it's always going to be better than doing nothing, but it's not maximally efficient. And especially for people who have finite time, I think it's much more important to be spending significant amounts of time above and below where they would otherwise normally default. Right. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm prepared to move on to another topic. Is there anything we haven't covered on exercise that you think we should cover? I mean, the, the details obviously are beyond the scope of this conversation. So that's just, if you really are a novice and you have to figure out how to engage resistance training, or I guess, I guess zone two was, was pretty easy to capture in, in this conversation. But, you know, we can't give a, anything like a guide to how to use a gym appropriately in this conversation. And, and there's a wealth of of resources out there, and, and many of, of which have been created by you. Uh, is there anything else you want to say by way of guidance here? No, I mean, I think um, one of the things in the book that I do is I link to, or I give a, a URL to a whole bunch of videos that I've made, because mm -hmm. I also think that a number of the exercises I talk about in the strength training section are difficult to write about. You know, yeah. I, I, I make an attempt to do it, but I, I think a video is easier. So if you're reading this and you're thinking, man, I don't quite understand the nuance of what he means by, you know, preloading the hip here, you know, check out all those videos. And hopefully that is a, a great way to begin doing it yourself. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about heart disease. We've talked a little bit about the diet and nutrition section of some of the, the relevant variables, but not really. I, mean, I guess the first question, which will, it will intersect with a piece of received wisdom that most people think they have, but they probably don't. What is the contribution of diet to the true risk factors 
of heart disease, which is to say that, you know, like, I guess the first question is, if we care about cholesterol, how much does eating cholesterol affect one's lipid profile, uh, if at all? And what, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't go into it in any depth previously. What, how do you think about diet and exercise through the lens of mitigating one's risk for cardiovascular disease? So I think the biggest impact of diet on cardiovascular disease is primarily through metabolic health. So when you think about what are the, what are the modifiable behaviors uh, or modifiable risk factors for cardiovascular disease, I would say in order, probably smoking is the most costly. Mm. Hypertension and ApoB, or just call it hypertension and lipoproteins, uh, would come in probably second. And then right there with it would be metabolic health. So hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, you know, everything on that spectrum that runs the gamut from insulin resistance to type 2 diabetes. Those are, those are really the big ones. And so therefore the question is, to what extent do diet and exercise influence those things? And the answer is obviously to some extent they do. So I would say that from the standpoint of lipids, pardon me, let's start with blood pressure, right? So from the standpoint of blood pressure, I would say diet and exercise have a pretty significant effect on blood pressure. Exercise probably more than diet, although if an individual is overweight and they lose weight, and I'm blanking on the exact number, uh, but there's a relatively linear correlation for every pound lost, you know, how many, you know, percentage of a millimeter of mercury you can expect to see a reduction in blood pressure. Mm. So, so, so there's a clear benefit there. On the lipid side, we certainly know that poor metabolic health tends to come with an increase in triglycerides. And the higher the triglycerides, all things equal, the higher the ApoB, and the higher the ApoB, the higher the risk. So that's a great example of how metabolic dysfunction will also negatively impact the lipid profile. And we also know that higher consumption of saturated fat, all things equal, is going to increase cholesterol synthesis, but probably in some individuals decreases LDL clearance out of the circulation. And it's really LDL clearance from the circulation that is the determinant of how much LDL and to some extent VLDL you have floating around. And LDL and VLDL are really the, uh, along with LP little a, but we could talk about that separately. Mm. The, these are the things that are really driving atherosclerosis. So anything that impairs their clearance is, is going to be problematic. Now, you know, you might say, well, Peter, based on that, I mean, we should really do everything in our power to adopt a diet that lowers LDL. And I would say there was probably some merit to that 40 or 50 years ago. But today, if there's one area where medicine has really hit it out of the park, it's in this arena. I mean, this is the one thing that I think medicine has done better than anything else, perhaps with the exception of antimicrobial therapy, is we have staggeringly effective drugs that can eradicate lipids, and especially in the last five years, with no side effects. So statins certainly come with side effects. Probably 10% of the population can't take them. Mm. But the newer generation of drugs, right, the PCSK9 inhibitors, bambidoic acid, Eventually, we're going to have probably a new CTEP inhibitor that's, that's going to really be game-changing. So, so what we've got in the last five years and what we're going to have in the next decade 
we basically were at the point where we can eliminate ApoB and by extension LDL. And we can do it with no side effects. And therefore, I don't know that using diet to fix your lipid problem is the right solution. I think we should mm. use diet to fix your metabolic problem. And if there is still a lipid problem at the end of that, I would address it pharmacologically. Mm. Exercise, of course, has indirect benefits that are much harder to measure through, you know, for example, vascular factors, smooth muscle factors, endothelial factors, BDNF factors that not just have these enormous benefits with respect to lowering your risk of heart disease, but also lowering your risk of neurodegenerative disease. I think that's another area where exercise almost stands alone mm -hmm. as the, the, the hands down most important tool at, at reducing risk. Hmm. I want to drill down on this, on the medication front. I, I was thinking of leaving that as a separate topic, but the, the phrase you used of, of, you know, no side effects is something that I will sort it should pique the interest of, of listeners. And it's just interesting to consider one's bias against medication here. Uh, you know, and this is certainly my bias. You know, if you can do it with lifestyle, given that the, our drugs tend to be such blunt in instruments, and, and so many of them tend to have, you know, their own risks and obvious side effect profile. I, I think many people are leery of taking medication, and for good reason. I happen to be one of these people who can't seem to successfully take a statin. And so, you know, as you know, I'm on a PCSK9 inhibitor uh, and seem to tolerate that fine. But, you know, anyone hearing about the, the pharmacology of a PCSK9 inhibitor, you know, they, you, you learn that it's a monoclonal antibody, and a, I think it's spun up in the cells of Chinese hamsters, if I'm not mistaken. It all begins to sound creepy and, and, and not like something they necessarily want to take unless it's, it's something close to an emergency. And yet so many people have you know, lipid profiles that just can't be successfully modified through diet and exercise, right? And they're just, we're at this time where we, we know enough about the causality here that less of the, the LDL, and maybe you want to talk about the, the various fractions thereof, is, seems to be an intrinsic good, right? I mean, if you, when you're talking about um, certainly the small particle size, how do you think about one's sense of the downside or just the, the unknown risk of taking medications, especially new medications? I mean, statins have been around a while, but PCSK9 inhibitors, not so much. What is your kind of your risk reward thinking with respect to medical intervention of this type in otherwise healthy people who are just contemplating the ongoing year over year risk of having less than optimal blood chemistry, right? And and now they're now we're we're, we're telling them that there are these drugs on offer that many many millions of people are taking, but some are relatively recent, and you just alluded to drugs I've never even heard of that are maybe coming on the market next week. How do you think about the decision to take a drug? And in this case, we're talking about drugs you plan to be on for the rest of your life. What thinking goes into that for you? And how do you weigh it against the risk of doing nothing? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, Sam. And it's, it's one that obviously can't be answered globally. It has to be answered very specifically. So I'm just going to assume your question does not speak broadly to any pharmaco you know, any, anything in the pharmacopoeia, but rather 
specifically lipid-lowering agents. Is mm. that a fair statement? Yeah, but I, I guess I would also add concerns and what I would consider fairly galling revelations about the the precariousness of our sourcing of drugs. I mean, I, I, so you did this fantastic podcast a couple of years ago at my urging with Catherine Ebon, who, who wrote this fairly harrowing Vanity Fair piece on just how unreliable our supply chain is with respect to generic drugs in particular, but it even it, it extended to the precursors of name brand drugs too. And we get most of this stuff from India when you, know, when you examine just how reliable you know it is that you're you're getting what you what you think you're you're getting based on yeah. the words on the bottle i mean in the case of generic drugs if i'm not mistaken it was something like 40% of medications are just not at all what they seem that's frankly terrifying and and uh, you know i personally haven't found a way of doing anything other than just crossing my fingers and and hoping i'm getting the drug that it, that, that i think i'm getting uh when, you know whether i'm giving it to myself or giving it to my kids so there's just this, there's this, this basic fear around medication. Some of it well warranted. So I mean, I guess there's there's a glo- there's this global you know storm cloud of concern around drugs, and now we have these specific drugs that obviously hold a, a very well established promise and are fairly well tolerated by by more or less everyone. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I guess just address the the general issue here. I mean, we're just it's a less than ideal condition in which we are shopping for pharmaceuticals. And I, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are about how we might improve that situation, but it's, um, it's not perfect. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the, the interview I did with Catherine, which is probably four years ago now, has, been forever, has forever changed the way I, I look at the industry. And so for me and my patients, it's basically if it's not a if it's not a branded drug that's being taken if it needs to be a generic for some reason then we've got a cross reference of companies who are at least in compliance with FDA so you know you I don't think to your point you can ever be 100% sure um shy of batch testing every single drug you take uh for purity but you can definitely improve the odds in your favor if you abide by those two rules. When in doubt, always take a branded. Mm. And if a branded isn't available, take a generic that is not made by a company that's on an FDA list. I think there's another macro point there, which is when you can solve a problem with you know, nutrition, exercise, uh, sleep, et cetera, for which presumably you have a biomarker to measure it, right? like blood pressure or lipids, by all means do it. The reason I have a particular point of view on pharmacology and lipids comes down to another issue, which I think I'll explain in a moment. But yeah, I would much rather see a patient fix their blood pressure with weight loss and exercise and getting rid of their CPAP or you know, getting rid of their sleep apnea with CPAP rather than putting them on a blood pressure medication. However, if my choice is We've tried those things and we're not able to close the gap. And I have to watch you walk around with a blood pressure of 135 over 85 versus put you on an ACE inhibitor and get your blood pressure to 120 over 80. I'm going to do that all day long Mm. because the data are unambiguous. Hypertension is a silent killer. And if your blood pressure is 135 over 90, your odds of having a heart attack, stroke, or developing Alzheimer's disease are so much higher than if your blood pressure is 120 over 80 even if I require medication to do that. But w- one question on blood pressure. Yeah. Are both the systolic and diastolic numbers e- equally important? Or I mean, how do you, 
if someone had a blood pressure of 130 over 80 versus 120, 120 over 90, over 90. Right? yeah, like how, how do you yeah, think they about both, that? They both have to be in order. And we're much more strict on this after the sprint trial. So there was a, a really, really good trial that was done recently that, that basically lowered the bar. It, it, it basically looked at if you treat everybody to better than 120 over 80, regardless of starting point. So if you're the cases you described, right? So, so basically, it's like if you, if you had one group that you just treated to, to kind of 135 over 85 or 130 over 85 versus 120 over 80, what's the difference in outcomes? And it's, it's significant. And so while there might be slightly different pathology concerns with elevated diastolic versus elevated systolic, we do hold the patients to both of those being below the target. Hmm. And by the way, for most people, most younger people were having a harder time controlling systolic. Right. So you're, you know, you're, you're, once you correct the systolic, their diastolic ends up being a little bit low. So they'll be, you know, kind of 120 over 70 or something. But let's, let's talk about why this lipid thing in particular is such an issue. And it really comes down to the following set of facts. So the first is, I already mentioned this, right? So cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death. And it's amazing to me how little attention it gets. You know, I mean, I think if you ask most people, they would assume cancer is the leading cause of death. But it's not. And globally, the gap between cancer, you know, cancer is number two in the United States, but, but globally, the gap is even larger. Uh, heart disease is probably killing 70% more people globally than cancer is. So the question is, what can we do about it? And why is it something that's relatively unique to our species? Because cancer is not unique to our species, right? Mm -hmm. Now, maybe, you know, so, so, but there's something about atherosclerosis that's relatively unique to our species, and it really has to do with the composition of our lipids. And by the way, this may, from an evolutionary perspective, go back to the brain problem. It may be that because we needed so much cholesterol for our brains and for our hormone developments during a time of very significant scarcity, that we developed these lipoproteins as a way to hoard more cholesterol. Hmm. And basically, we're now stuck with that, right? So we had this awesome thing that, again, allowed us to leapfrog out of the evolutionary cesspool. But now that nutrients aren't scarce and like we have enough food stock to, to, to make enough cholesterol easily, we simply don't need it anymore. And now it's basically become a liability for us on a timescale that evolution doesn't care about. But what it really comes down to is causality. And this is something that I think it's very easily forgotten in medicine, is when we are treating something, we need to understand if it is causally the problem or not. And I think there's no greater confusion in cardiovascular medicine if you really force people to think about it than on the causality of LDL. So the question is, is LDL causally related to atherosclerosis? And the answer is unequivocally yes. Uh, and I won't bore you mm. or the listeners with all of the lines of evidence, but I do go through Just this. Just one question right? on that point. Is it yeah. unequivocally yes for people who have already suffered some cardiac event, or is it unequivocally yes for everybody? It's unequivocally yes for everybody, but the question is over what time scale. So again, the Mendelian randomizations, and there have been many done on this, make it abundantly clear. And when you look at the Mendelian randomizations coupled with 
the RCT data, you see that it's it's really quite clear that for every you know millimole reduction in LDLC, you have X reduction in the risk of ASCVD, and basically the area under the curve of your exposure to LDL over a given period of time is proportional to your risk. Now, this is a very important point to make, which is just because something is causal does not mean it is both necessary and sufficient. It could be neither necessary nor sufficient and still be causal. So smoking would be an example of that, right? So, I mean, yeah. would you agree that smoking is causally related to lung cancer? Yeah, except you can find people who get lung cancer who've never smoked and, and who smoke and never get lung cancer. So hence your point. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so we know that 15% of people who get lung cancer never smoked. And we know that many smokers never go on to get lung cancer. But we know that smoking is causally related to lung cancer with a hazard ratio of 10 to 15x. So smoking is neither necessary nor sufficient to cause lung cancer, but it's causally related. Now, armed with that information, if you're a public health official, is your view of smoking that we should let people smoke until a certain age, at which point mm -hmm. the risk becomes high enough? No. Is your view that we should let people smoke until they have clinical evidence of lung cancer? I mean, of course not, right? I'm being facetious here, yeah. but the point is, because we've established the causality of smoking in the equation, we take what is known as primordial preventative steps. We tell you never to pick up a cigarette. And the day you pick up a cigarette, we start harping on you to put it down, period. My point is, we should be adopting the exact same insight when it comes to lipoproteins. And this is not something we can say across many domains of medicine. Yeah. But when it comes to ApoB, we have the same degree of causality. The hazard ratio is not as big. So I'm not, I don't want someone to come away from this thinking that a high ApoB is associated with as high a hazard ratio for ASCVD as smoking is for lung cancer. But the, associated, the, the causality is just as strong. And therefore, if you really wanted to think of a thought experiment, if you took ApoB down to a physiologic level in a teenager, you, they, would, they couldn't get heart disease in their lifetime. You mean if you maintained a teenager's level of ApoB throughout your, your life? That's right. Yeah. So as Peter Libby describes it, you know, physiologic ApoB is the concentration of about 10 to 30 milligrams per deciliter, which is you know, what a child has, excluding the children I mentioned earlier who mm -hmm. have familial hypercholesterolemia. So if, you, if, you, if, if your kids and my kids kept their ApoB where they are now, and we just magically kept them there, you know, they'd end up being 80 years old and they'd have the coronary arteries of people that we think of in their 30s today. Right, right. But they, now there are people in their 30s and presumably even in their 20s who start showing an elevated lipid profile. That's right. And so presumably you would recommend, just as you'd recommend people not be smoking in their 20s, you would recommend mitigating bad blood chemistry with statins or some other drug as early as that bad blood chemistry shows up. Yeah. If I see elevated lipids or elevated blood pressure in someone in their 30s, we're going to treat it. Right. And again, I, 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 let's use blood pressure as an example. I don't think 
it's, I think it's completely imprudent to let a 30-year-old with hypertension walk around. Just because their 10-year risk of something happening is non-existent, which it pretty much is, mm-hmm. just as their 10-year risk of having a heart attack, regardless of how bad their lipids are, is virtually unmeasurable, it's ridiculous not to do anything about it if you understand causality. Okay, but now just on this point. So now let's get to the, sorry, all of this is to now still bring it back to your point of how do you, with that insight, balance the risk question? Unless there was something else you wanted to. Well, no, I I wanted to just specify the the risk question here with respect to, I guess, both blood pressure and metabolic disease. If I'm not mistaken, part of the potential side effect profile for all of these cholesterol reducing drugs is a, a, increased risk of type 2 diabetes and an increased risk of hypertension. So how do you thread that needle? The increase in the risk of type 2 diabetes is small but real, and it's statin only. So we don't see that with PCSK9 inhibitors. We don't see that with ezetimibe. And Mm. to date, we have not seen it with bempedoic acid. Uh, We certainly haven't seen it with Vesepa either, although I don't put Vesepa in the same category. It's a relatively weak lipid modulator. But you're absolutely right. And it's, again, it's kind of one of the reasons we do like using continuous glucose monitors periodically in people is, frankly, even though a relatively small number of people will go on to develop type 2 diabetes from a statin, I think a greater number, I don't know how to quantify it, probably become somewhat more glucose intolerant, even if they never reach the level of type 2 diabetes Mm. when placed on a statin. And that's very difficult to pick up without a CGM. The hemoglobin A1C can pick it up, but the hemoglobin A1C is so influenced by other factors that I don't find it to be that helpful. Mm. But we have had a number of patients that we've taken off statins, even though they've ostensibly tolerated them, because we see you know, a five or 10 point change on their, on their CGM. And as mm. such, we, we sort of say, look, th- so the worst offender is a torvastatin, we might go and try a different agent like patavastatin or rosuvastatin. But if we still see the same effect, or frankly, if we see any side effect, we're, we're, you know, I always tell patients, look, I'm really glad we're practicing medicine in 2023 because in 2003, just 20 years ago, you didn't really have an option. You were kind of going to be on a statin and that was it if you needed to lower lipids, mm-hmm. right? Bile acid sequesterants, which were the first generation drug, are intolerable. We don't use them today and we certainly didn't want to use them 20 years ago. Zetamibe wasn't around. PCSK9 inhibitors hadn't even, you know, even the idea of the gene for the protein PCSK9 hadn't been discovered, or I guess that we knew what the protein was, but we didn't under, we, we didn't have the idea at the time to inhibit it. So the last decade has really been an explosion. And that optionality means we really don't ever need to tolerate side effects, mm. right? Whether it be any change in blood pressure, any change in insulin resistance, any type of muscle soreness, we just don't have to tolerate it anymore. Right. I, I had actually thought that PCSK9 inhibitors had increased some risk of type 2 diabetes. It's been a while since I looked at the fine print there, but... Uh, it's, it's, it's possible. I'm, 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 I'm not aware of it, but, but it's, you know, it's possible that there was a more recent study that commented to that effect. Mm. So as, as far as the trade-off with um, increased risk of hypertension, what, what, I mean, what, would you, what do you do there if you're running that risk with, uh, to some degree? And I mean, let, let's say you see it happen in a patient, right? Their, their blood pressure goes up somewhat, but their, their lipids look better. 
What do you then do? Do you then add a drug to lower bl blood pressure? or Not if we can find a different lipid lowering agent. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you always want to be thoughtful about what's a class, what's a class response versus what's a drug response. So a lot of times with statins, the muscle soreness is a class response. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think if you're teasing out the data, most people think that resuvastatin or Crestor is the worst offender. And obviously, pravastatin and patavastatin have been historically marketed as the least likely to induce it. I've seen some conflicting data to that effect. And truthfully, we are less, we are less likely to drug swap within a class when we see class-based side yeah. effects such as blood glucose changing and muscle soreness. So again, I think this gets back to the point though, which is today the risk of taking an aggressive stance against lipids is much lower than the risk was 20 years ago because 20 years ago you had fewer agents and therefore you were basically stuck with potentially having to tolerate more side effects. Right. Right. You, you have mentioned- What's interesting, Sam, by the way, is sure. the genetic stuff here, right? So, I mean, this would be a whole other podcast, but as I'm sure you're aware, really what most people are now talking about is as we've realized the lack of need for ApoB, right? As we now realize that you don't actually need LDL to live, cholesterol is essential for life, but cells make enough cholesterol to get by with, without having to traffic it with LDL. Mm. And we have enough HDL to traffic cholesterol that we could, we could have a fraction of the LDL we have and would survive fine. And we, we know that, by the way, because there are people genetically who don't make enough PCSK9 to have really sustainable or measurable LDL, and they live perfectly fine lives. So now people are basically saying, why aren't we just using gene therapy to eradicate this stuff? That's a whole other discussion, but that's kind of where I think people are thinking about this. Mm. What's the relation between ApoB and LDL? Every LDL particle, along with every VLDL particle and IDL particle, has one and only one ApoB molecule wrapped around it. That's what allows it to interact with the receptor, uh, the LDL receptor, to be cleared out of circulation. By measuring ApoB concentration, then we're measuring the number of atherogenic particles, which is a far better predictor of lipid-mediated risk than what is typically measured, which is LDL cholesterol, which is mm. simply the concentration of cholesterol contained within all of the LDL particles. Yeah, so when, when many people get their standard blood work, they don't get the most sophisticated fractionation of all of these particles. And so like, for instance, you, you mentioned briefly LP little a, most people would, would never see that on a normal blood panel. Maybe, perhaps that's changed, but it certainly used to be the case. And I'm not even sure there's, there's anything to do to, to intervene on that particular molecule. What's the significance of LP little a, and is there anything to do about it? Right now, there is not really much to do about it, but knowing it is important for a couple of reasons. One, if you've got it, and if you're listening to this, there's a good chance certainly a non-trivial chance you have it, given that the prevalence is anywhere from 1 in 8 to 1 in 12, depending on your ethnicity. Your risk of atherosclerosis is significantly higher if you have an elevated LP little a, but so too is your risk of aortic stenosis. And there is something you should at least be thinking about doing there, which is monitoring your, your aortic valve. But when an individual has an elevated LP little a, you have now a greater reason to be aggressive with their ApoB reduction. Because that's basically the most important thing you can do until 
I don't know, I would say we're probably still four years away from a drug that is, you know, looking at approval for LP little a reduction. So it's a drug that attacks the synthesis of apolipoprotein little a, which is what turns an LDL into an LP little a molecule. So an, L an LP little a is just a more atherogenic particle, and it's just a, a worse looking LDL. But if, if you use something called antisense oligonucleotides, you can break the synthesis of the protein and knock the LP little a down to basically unmeasurable levels. So that's probably where we're going pharmacologically there. But because LP little a is genetically determined, I think it's a test everybody should have once, and it should be done relatively early. There's no reason not to be doing this test in your 20s or 30s. You don't need to wait until you're 50 to do this. Mm. So, so what are you recommending that people do with respect to kind of proactive medical testing for risk of cardiovascular disease? That we're talking about a, a blood panel, which is esoteric, or it's a standard CBC, or what, what, how, how does someone talk I mean, to a their doctor? A standard lipid panel with ApoB is sufficient once mm. you've had that LP little a once. So the first time, obviously, you want that LP little a. But once that's been done, just a standard lipid panel plus the ApoB gives you, you know, most of what you need to understand with respect to lipid management. Obviously, there are other metrics that matter as far as cardiovascular health. You, metabolic health is very important to cardiovascular health. So mm -hmm. understanding insulin, hemoglobin A1C, glucose, liver function tests, uric acid, homocysteine, all of those things matter as, as well. Inflammatory markers such as C-reactive protein. Um, oxidized LDL can be relevant. And then there are, of course, other imaging tests which start to matter the older a person is. So if you're really taking primary prevention to its earliest stages, you know, most people are probably going to not have clinically evident atherosclerosis in their 30s, although some do. And I write about in the book how even I did. I had a low but non zero calcium score at the age of 35. Right. Which in retrospect is not surprising given my significant family history, despite otherwise, you know, not looking that bad. But, you know, certainly you get to a point where if a person is reluctant to undergo treatment or maybe just wants to better understand where they are uh, as far as risk, a CT angiogram can, can certainly aid in doing that. Mm. I just generally don't believe in doing tests unless the test is going to alter the management. Right. And so if I've already committed to aggressive management, I don't really need to see the results of a CTA, be it positive or negative. That's not going to really impact therapy. Right. So the, if you're already taking a statin, well, I guess it's conceivable that if you did get an angiogram and you saw that you, you now had a positive calcium score, you might decide to add a PCSK9 inhibitor on top of a statin to drive everything lower if you, you know, and if you weren't otherwise doing that, right? Could you imagine responding in that way? Well, I mean, again, it just depends. If you, if you come back to this argument of causality, it's, it's really just, you know, you should be in the business of trying to get ApoB as low as you can without anyway. any adverse outcome. Right. And that shouldn't really matter if you have a positive or negative calcium score. You know, for a for atherosclerosis to be so significant that you would actually take an intervention in an asymptomatic individual, 
is another situation. So there's a whole other world which says, okay, you know, when do you put a stent in one of those coronary arteries? At, at, at what level of occlusion do you put a stent in? And that's a separate issue. Again, there's an area where there's no ambiguity. Mm -hmm. So if a person is having a heart attack, that's a do not pass go, do not collect $200 scenario. If a person is having unstable angina, right, they're having chest pain at rest, same thing, no questions asked. Uh, if a person is having exertional angina, so they don't have chest pain at rest, but you exercise them and they have chest pain, I think virtually everybody would agree that you're probably better off revascularizing them. But what if you have that person who, no matter what you do, they don't experience chest pain, you do a stress test on them, their EKG leads don't change, but if you look at their angiogram, or their coronary CT angiogram, so not an actual angiogram, mm -hmm. it's a train wreck. And there, there's a lot of debate, actually. Right. And, and I think there are, there are certain tools that we use to help make that decision. One of them is something called fractional flow reserve. So looking at how much pressure drop exists across the lesion, which can be estimated from a CT scan. And if that pressure drop is significant enough, there's some data to suggest that those patients might actually benefit from revascularization. Mm -hmm. But again, all of this, Sam, is we just hope we never get there. Like, we just, we just, I just want to avoid that entire vicinity by as much as possible. Right. Okay, so, so finally on this point, perhaps we should just give some ballpark numbers, if you can, when you're talking about driving someone's ApoB score lower, what is low in your view? And, and perhaps, perhaps you want a similar number for LDL or LP little a or any other measure here. Again, it's going to really depend on when you're starting, how high it's been historically. You know, another way to think about this, Sam, is like, uh, how much should you be saving for retirement? Mm. You know, if you're starting at 60 and you have a high burn rate, you're going to be saving a lot, right? If you're starting at 30 and you have a reasonable burn rate, not that much. So, it, you know, if a person shows up and their LDLC is at the fifth percentile naturally, meaning their, their ApoB is 60 milligrams per deciliter, we're probably not going to do anything. You know, if they don't have, if they're, if they have normal LP little a, if their ApoB is there, it's been there forever, we're just going to kind of keep it there and keep an eye on them. So we're, we're probably not going to induce any lipid lowering strategy whatsoever. You know, convert, because again, you think about this as an area under the curve problem. Conversely, somebody shows up, they do have a positive calcification. You know, they're 48 years old and their calcium score puts them at the 80th percentile and their ApoB is at the 50th percentile. You know, we're going to, so meaning their ApoB is like 100 milligrams per deciliter. We're going to treat them to an ApoB of probably, you know, 30 to 40 milligrams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, obviously this is more detail than we can get into. So people need to talk to their, their docs. Let's move on to cancer. Uh, we are a half century into the war on cancer, at least. How's it going? You know, if you'd asked me this question five years ago, Sam, I would say it's, uh, it's really going horribly. I would say today it's, we're not winning, but, but I, I see some changes, right? So, so if this is the civil war, we, we're not at Gettysburg yet, um, which I'm not a civil war historian, mm -hmm. but I, I'm pretty sure that that's about when the, the tide turned for the union. So I'd, I'd say we're heading to Gettysburg, I hope. And I say that largely on the back of immunotherapy. So to maybe put some numbers to it, when Richard Nixon declared the war on cancer, 
if you were diagnosed with metastatic cancer, especially what's called epithelial cancer, cancer or solid organ tumors, which are the cancers most people think of, right? Breast, colon, prostate, pancreas, lung, et cetera. If you were diagnosed with metastatic cancer, the probability you'd be alive in 10 years was 0%. Five years ago, there were a couple of minor, minor exceptions to that rule. And, and, and really our biggest successes in treating cancer were on the non-solid organ side, so on the leukemia lymphoma side, mm -hmm. uh, in particular on the pediatric leukemia side has been some great successes, on the Hodgkin's lymphoma side, and then a couple of really, really rare cancers like certain types of testicular cancers, certain types of, you know, one type of cancer called GI stromal tumor, which happened to have one particular mutation that was targetable by a drug. But other than that, it was pretty low. Today, I think we can say maybe 5 to 10% of people with epithelial metastatic tumors will survive, uh, which again, doesn't sound great, but as a proof of principle, I think is remarkable. What it's basically demonstrated is we can manipulate an individual's immune system and turn that immune system on their cancer in the same way that their immune system would turn on the cells of their body that are harboring viruses. And that's a, that's a remarkable achievement from an evolutionary perspective, right? Our, our immune systems are probably the most sophisticated systems in our body in what they have figured out over, you know, hundreds of thousands and if, if not, you know, millions of years as far as distinguishing between self and non-self hmm. and distinguishing between infected self versus non-infected self and the ability to just parse out those subtle differences on the basis of a few amino acids and selectively kill is remarkable. And to now realize that we are figuring out how to do that against cancer is, is, is exciting, gives me a lot of hope. And I, I think that that's really what the next decade is going to be about, is doubling down on that and figuring out how to make that go from, you know, five to 8% to 80%, because we do have very clear evidence that 80% of solid organ tumors display what are called novel neoantigens meaning 80% of people walking around with, with cancer have signals, peptides, antigens that tell the immune system that they are not self, which means they are targets to be killed. Mm. The reason that it's not happening is not enough of the immune cells are seeing that signal. So yeah, the, on, on this topic, cancer generally, this invites the, I think the, the most uh, still esoteric, proactive medical testing, and also the, some of the, the downside risk of too much information. I mean, you, you get information that you don't necessarily know whether there's anything to, to act upon, and yet now you have the, the idea that uh, you might be at greater risk for cancer. So I'm speaking about things like medical imaging. I mean, now we have full-body MRIs that are actually not as expensive as you, as you might expect. Uh, although insurance doesn't cover them, but I think they're they're down to like two thousand dollars now. Um, there are blood screenings for cancer markers. I guess there's you know there's genotyping that could turn up elevated risk for certain kinds of cancers, among other health problems. How do you think about proactive medical testing, and when is information useful? I mean, you and I have had many sidebar conversations on this topic, but. What, what would you recommend to people generically, or, or what would you recommend with respect to 
how they might just think about, for instance, the question of, of getting a, a full body MRI or getting a blood test that looks for, you know, 50 different cancer subtypes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to put that question in context, it's important to understand the why. Like, why would you go through all of this, right? Because clearly there's a lot of downside to it, right? It costs money. You run the risk of getting false positives, which would create duress for no reason. There better be a reason to do this, right? So w- what's the reason? So I think the, the, the reason is the study, the side-by-side comparison of what happens when you treat a cancer in an early stage versus a late stage. Stated another way, what is the impact of cancer burden on tumor response rate? Uh, I highlight two examples of this in the book. One is using colon cancer, one is using breast cancer. So in cancer therapy parlance, adjuvant therapy is the name that's given to therapy when the patient has no visible signs of cancer. So adjuvant therapy is what it's called when you make a complete resection of the patient's tumor. Now you know that there's still cancer there. That's why you're giving the chemotherapy, right? If, if, if you knew that every cancer cell was gone after you chopped out their colon and lymph nodes, you wouldn't do anything. But of course, we know from endless clinical trials that if you take two groups of people who have had a complete resection of their colorectal cancer and their, their contaminated lymph nodes, and you give one of them nothing, and you give the other one of them chemotherapy, uh, in five years, way more of the people getting chemotherapy are going to be alive. Right. So that's why adjuvant therapy works, and we know that it's treating cells that are somewhere in the body but not visible to the eye. So let's pose the following question. What is the difference in survivability for a patient receiving adjuvant chemotherapy for colorectal cancer versus a patient receiving the exact same regimen but for metastatic cancer? So the first patient, again, they have no visible cancer left. You took out their colon and lymph nodes. The second patient, you took out their colon and lymph nodes, but now they also have cancer that's completely visible in their liver. So one is stage three, one is stage four. Right. Those people are going to get the same chemotherapy. In the first group, more than half of those people, depending on the series, maybe 60% of those people are going to survive. In the second group, none of them will survive. Why? What's the difference? It would seem to be, because I don't know the answer, It would seem to be that the more cancer cells you have, the more likely you have escape mechanisms for the cancer. You have more mutations in the cancer, and you therefore have a greater chance that the cancer is going to escape the effects of the chemo. And so what we're talking about is a difference of probably a few billion cells that are not visible to the naked eye but are there versus probably close to a trillion cells or certainly, you know, a hundred billion cells in the case of the person with metastatic disease. You go through this same exercise with other histologies and you see the same answer over and over again. Medication for medication, it always works best when you have the fewest cells possible to treat. Hmm. And so again, the implication of this is until we have really, really successful treatments that work independent of tumor burden, and by the way, immunotherapy may turn out to be that, but until we get there, our best bet is not getting cancer. Our second best bet is catching it as early as possible so that we can maximize our odds of 
outsmarting the cancer's mutations. And so only when you think about it through that lens can you then come back and justify the enormous pain that is required to do early and aggressive cancer screening vis-a-vis -vis all the things that you, know, you just brought up, right? Liquid biopsies, whole body MRIs, colonoscopies done on a more aggressive schedule than would be ordinarily recommended you know, every decade and things mm -hmm. like that. Starting colonoscopy earlier than what is recommended. I mean, all of these things start to factor into it, and each of them comes with a cost. In some case, it's just financial and emotional. In some case, it's real cost. It's physical risk. I mean, a colonoscopy is not a benign procedure. It almost always is, but it isn't every single time. Right. So it sounds like earlier is better is a, a generic principle, right? I mean, it's, it's, are there exceptions to earlier is better? I mean, like if you presumably every cancer that could be found, let's say on a full body MRI at the earliest stage that it's, it's visible, you know, you have a, a single voxel that is recognized to be a tumor, that's when you want to have surgery for that cancer, right? And so it, what is the argument? About, uh, yes, there are downstream possible negative effects of getting a, obviously a false positive, right? Then you go chasing a false positive with a biopsy, and that has certain medical risk and also uh, considerable hassle associated with it. But assuming you're getting valid information, leaving false positives aside, knowing sooner rather than later is an intrinsic good in your view, given that cutting out a primary tumor is always better than chasing a metastasis. That's correct. And, and by the way, going back to how do you mitigate some of those risks? Well, I think one of the reasons or one of the ways that you think about mitigating risk is by stacking modalities. Right. So I spoke with a, a patient, um, God, last Friday, and uh, you know, she's in her early 70s. And She's just decided she doesn't want to do mammography anymore. And I kind of wanted to explore the why, right? And she's like, well, you know, I do, I do breast ultrasound and that's good enough. And, um, you know, mammography has a lot of false positive and a lot of false negative. I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. But I said, you know, what you want to think about is each one of these tests has a blind spot and has a really good area of detection. And the more tests that have different strengths and weaknesses that you can stack on top of each other, the better you can discern signal from noise. And so I said, you know, mammography is actually really good at detecting calcified lesions. And because, you know, you're postmenopausal and your breast tissue is actually much less dense now than it was premenopausally, mammography is actually pretty good at picking up those calcified lesions, which by the way, they're going to get missed on MRI and probably on ultrasound. But mammography has its blind spots, right? Like it's, you know, it's an 85% sensitivity, 90% specificity test. MRI, conversely, is going to be close to 100% sensitive, but much lower specificity. Hmm. And, and then if we factor in a liquid biopsy, we're going with, you know, even lower sensitivity and very high specificity. So, right, so liquid biopsy is the exact opposite of MRI. We're talking you know, depending on the stage, it could be 20 to 30% sensitivity. It's abhorrent, but it's 99.5% mm -hmm. specificity. So everything you said is true, but this is where I think the nuance comes in of how do, you, how do you use these tools together 
acknowledging that, of course, that creates a whole new set of problems around cost. I mean, the MRI is a couple thousand dollars, a liquid biopsy is a thousand dollars. These things are not cheap. And that's why you're never going to find a recommendation to do this because recommendations are always going to be based on large scale trials and on, you know, sort of societal cost. There are some large scale trials that are being done on the liquid biopsy front, and that's going to be very interesting to see. Those are being done in the UK. So it'll be very interesting to see what that looks like. But at the individual level, for an individual who can afford it, especially an individual who's at high risk, I, I, I would encourage people to, to, to be more aggressive in screening for, for the exact reason you said, which is uh, until we have clear and unambiguous therapies that will always work independent of tumor burden, we want to be in the driver's seat getting these things out early. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, is there anything else to say about cancer with respect to mitigating one's risk? Well, I mean, we didn't really talk about mitigating the risk of yeah. cancer. I think here is an area where we have the least insight compared to cardiovascular disease and dementia. We really only have, I think, two clear drivers of risk, smoking and obesity. And I think obesity is really just a poor proxy for metabolic, mm-hmm. poor metabolic health. So I think it's it's less the adiposity that's the problem. I think it's the insulin resistance, the inflammation, the abundance of growth factors that comes with obesity that's, that's the problem. So obviously, not smoking and being as metabolically healthy as possible is, is very important. But the truth of it is, and, and, and you know, Bert Vogelstein wrote about this many years ago, and people got very upset about it. But he basically wrote a paper in Science saying, look, it's kind of just bad luck. You know, I mm. mean, at the end of the day, there are mutations that are, you know, cancer is a genetic disease and it's not a somat, it's not a germline mutation disease. It's a somatic mutation disease. And as we age, we just accumulate more and more somatic mutations. And over time, some of these just become the type of mutations that go on to produce unregulated cell growth. So roughly 90% of cancers don't come from a germline mutation. They're not they're yeah. not they're not a clear single gene predisposition. You might have polygenic risk for cancer, but but you know, at the end of the day there's a there's a, a bad luck component to this. This is an area where I wish we had better insight, Sam. Like I wish we I wish we for example had a better understanding of the relationship between cancer and pollution, air pollution. Mm-hmm. I, I personally believe that a high enough concentration of, you know, PM2.5s is probably increasing the risk of cancer. The epidemiology isn't entirely clear on that. I don't know if we're measuring, I don't know if we have a good enough signal on that, but it's hard for me to believe that people who live near coal plants are, are not impacted by that from a cancer perspective. So I, I, I wish we had a better understanding of, you know, the risk of pollutants in our water and our air. But I, 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 even, I think those, even though those don't come out as level one evidence, I, I, I suspect that they play a role. Hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about medication for longevity, if, that's, uh, if that is yet a thing. And we, we've talked about medication uh, with respect to the specific issues, in particular heart disease. But um, there are a few molecules you, you mentioned in the book, rapamycin, metformin. Is there anything that you recommend that people take now or that you take now where there's just mostly just upside, whatever the state of the evidence, and very little risk associated with it? Or are these life-extending molecules still speculative? 
Yeah, if we're, if we're talking about geroprotective molecules, so molecules you take not because they're targeting a specific disease like a lipid-lowering drug or you know a blood pressure drug, which obviously are geroprotective, they, I, they will help you live longer. Mm. But yes, what you're referring to is kind of these broader ones that are targeting more fundamental hallmarks of aging. I don't think we have enough evidence at this point to recommend any of them. And there are, but, but there are, there's certainly a hierarchy of them in my mind that probably looks different from the hierarchy one would arrive at if they're, you know, following influencers, right? So there are certain things that I just don't buy as being geroprotective at all, even though there's certainly a lot of talk about them being geroprotective. So, you know, nicotinamide riboside, NMN, mm -hmm. resveratrol, you know, the, these things I think have no, Geoprotective benefits that have been demonstrated yet in humans. And therefore, I don't think taking those things serves any purpose in that regard. I think at one um, point I was taking NMN, and wasn't there some recent revelation about its toxicity, or, or was it just the lack of effectiveness? Yeah, there's no shortage of, of studies on NMN. I mean, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure which one you're referring to. There, there, there were. Some studies that have, you know, been very poorly done that have suggested that NMN improved certain physical performance characteristics. I've written about a couple of these that are kind of not, not especially well done. There's also some studies that have suggested in certain animal models that NR, which is effectively mm -hmm. analogous to NMN, was increasing the rate of cancer metastases yeah. in already established cancers. I think that's uh, I Again, I'm not sure that I would translate that to humans necessarily, although I think there's a high enough theoretical and mechanistic risk for that that I, I, I think one could make the case that if you have cancer, taking NMN or NR might not be a good idea. Whether it causes cancer, I think, is an entirely different story. But I guess the two that probably get talked about the most are metformin and rapamycin. You brought those up as well. I think the case for metformin is a lot weaker today than it was 10 years ago when the first paper came out talking about this. So there's a article by Bannister and colleagues uh, 2014 that looked at, looked at an interesting cohort, basically. It looked at people with type 2 diabetes who were on metformin monotherapy, and it compared them to people who didn't have diabetes and, by extension, didn't take metformin. And in that analysis, the people with diabetes taking metformin had lower risk of mortality. And I can't recall if it was just cancer mortality or all-cause mortality. But there were a lot of problems with that study methodologically, and a repeat of that study, which was just published uh, last year, suggested the opposite was true. In other words, what you would believe was true was actually true when you did it, and it did it by both correcting for the methodologic error and not correcting for it, and it still got the same response. And I've, I've reviewed both of these papers elsewhere and, and come to the conclusion that I, I think if metformin is geroprotective, it's, it's not significantly geroprotective, and it might only be geroprotective for people who already have type 2 diabetes. I'm not convinced that it is in a non-diabetic. That said, there's a study going on right now that's testing that, and if, if that you know, test ends up yielding evidence that, that metformin is, is beneficial in a non-diabetic population, I, I'd be happy to revisit my, my point of view on it. But right now, I don't see compelling evidence that, that metformin should be taken by otherwise healthy people who are 
you know, especially if they're exercising and doing all the other things we care about. Mm -hmm. And same with rapamycin? I think the data for rapamycin are significantly better than the data for metformin, but we are sufficiently lacking in human data for rapamycin. Mm -hmm. um, so where metformin really falls short is it, it, when, it, when you put it into the ITP, the Interventions Testing Program, which is the NIH's most robust testing program for juroprotective molecules, metformin falls short. And yet rapamycin succeeds repeatedly, no matter how you do it. Start it old, start it late. You know, whatever, whatever happens, it seems to work well. So who's taking it? Who's prescribed rapamycin? Uh, normally, who's prescribed it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually not used that much anymore. It's historically been used for transplant patients. Mm -hmm. But these days, rapamycin has been uh, replaced but so patients who undergo organ transplants usually take a cocktail of drugs, but the, the rapamycin spot has been filled by another drug called FK506, which is actually not an mTOR inhibitor. So, you know, there are still some patients who take rapamycin, but if, if I were to figure who's taking the most rapamycin today, it's truthfully probably people taking it for, for its geroprotective benefits. And, and, and just to be clear, I do. Right, mm. so I have been taking rapamycin for about uh, five, yeah, about five years, and I take it with a reasonable amount of conviction that is loosely held. Mm. In in in, let's see, in about three years, I think we'll have a lot better data on this. There's a study called the Dog Aging Project that's being run by Matt Caberlin that is, I think, going to be the best study we get, shy of a huge human trial on the subject. And it's looking at mortality benefits of longevity in companion dogs. Mm. So there are no biomarkers that you can test to see whether you, you, this intervention, rapamycin in your case, is actually beneficial? I mean, it doesn't affect telomere length or is, I mean, there's nothing for you to do except just cross your fingers? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a, it's a little bit of the prayer thing. I mean, telomere length turns out to be an irrelevant biomarker anyway. It has no correlation with aging. So oh, I didn't know that. I, th I thought the way to assess one's... It's cellular age, but it has no bearing on organ organismal uh, Interesting. life. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's unfortunately, it's one of those dumb things that sort of gets co-opted by people who, yeah, unfortunately it's... Uh, so then why does anyone even look at cellular aging if there's no correlation with health? Sorry, are you saying why do people look at yeah, cellular I mean, aging? Isn't this like a David Sinclair thing where you would, you would look at this and say, well, you're, 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 you've got a biological age that's 10 years younger than your actual birth certificate? Oh, no, that's different. They're, they're looking at methylation, which also, by the way, has, an, has never been demonstrated to be able to predict future life. In other words, mm. biologic age is determined by epigenetics cannot predict future life better than chronologic age. Hmm. So when we look at, you know, if a 60-year-old person goes and gets one of those off-the-shelf biologic clocks and it says they're 30, what, do you think they're going to live 30 more years or 60 more years? Right. Yeah. Like there's, I mean, there's no chance that person's living 60 more years right. just because right. their biologic clock says they're 30. So that's a very interesting topic, by the way, that I'm insanely fascinated by, but that's, we can save that for we can save that for dinner one night okay. as to all the pitfalls of, of biologic clocks and um, epigenetic markers. 
there's promise there, but we're, we're still in early days and the current technology is, is really insufficient to offer much insight there. Mm. But to your, to your broader question, Sam, yeah, that's, that's really kind of the, the big problem we have in the aging field today. And it's not a sexy problem, but we don't have good biomarkers for aging. So I know that many people are interested in the problem of interventions and those matter, but I think we're going to be really kind of limited in big steps forward without having better ways to assess interventions. Because if, the, if you want to study interventions in humans, you can't study it using the gold standard, which is, you know, hard outcomes. Mm. You, you've got to, you're, you're going to be stuck using surrogate outcomes. And um, yeah, we don't, uh, we don't have ways to measure autophagy. We don't have ways to measure nutrient sensing. We don't have ways to really measure senescence. So I, I am actually hopeful that at some point measuring a change in epigenetics will work, but we have to eliminate biologic and technical noise. Right. And right now we haven't done either. So there's huge biologic noise, meaning what you do in any moment can influence the test. So like if you have a crappy meal one day, that'll influence the test. Obviously. It can't be meaningful if that's true. And the technical noise is horrible based on the array technology that they're using. They're not, they're not sequencing. So until they start to sequence and go basically CPG site by CPG site, this is, it's kind of a useless technology. Hmm. Okay, so ironically, I, I, have, <laughs> I have two topics left and they are closer to the center of the bullseye for um, my preoccupations but we're going to give them the, the shortest shrift because of the fact that I've already kept you for three hours. And there's, there may be less to say about them prescriptively that we can't deal with elsewhere or, or even just prescriptively at all. But that is brain health you know, and, and neurodegenerative disease and emotional health and well-being. Um, obviously, I, I, I focus on, on the latter a lot uh, at waking up. But, and you, you have a lot to say about your experience with depression and anger in the in the last chapter of the book, which is well worth reading. Let's just hit brain health very quickly, because beyond exercise and not smoking, and you know maximizing one's chances of optimizing for cardiovascular health and therefore not having a stroke, what do you recommend on the the neurodegenerative mitigation front? All right, so yeah, exercise number one, not smoking, having good blood pressure, not having diabetes or insulin resistance, probably avoiding head trauma, and then developing the highest cognitive reserve possible mm. and the highest amount of movement reserve possible. So it's, it's not that dissimilar to everything we talk about in the centenarian decathlon, right? So if you want to be strong and fit in your 80s, you need to be really strong and really fit in your 50s. And similarly, we see that people who move the best have the most reserve when it comes to neurodegenerative disease. So when we, you know, when we talk about neurodegenerative disease, we should remember that half of it is Alzheimer's, but half of it is like Lewy body dementia, mm. Parkinson's disease. And these things exist on more of a continuum than just sort of discrete diseases. So that's really the way to think about it, at least for me, is just how do I maximize the amount of reserve that I have? And, and it's, you know, people always want to ask you, I'm sure, you know, hey, should I just do more word cross, you know, crossword puzzles and things like that? And it turns out that doing crossword puzzles probably makes you better at doing crossword puzzles, but that's right. not really the type of 
super cognitively challenging stuff that you want to be working on. You, 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 you want to be working on things where, you know, there's, you're probably connecting cognition and movement together seems to be kind of the sweet spot. So, you know, epidemiology obviously suggests that people who are engaged cognitively in work, for example, have a better chance at staving off dementia. Dementia, of course, includes not just Alzheimer's disease, but obviously vascular dementia, frontal temporal lobe dementia, mm. and other forms. So, you know, I think the, the, the evidence isn't overwhelming there, but I think it certainly makes sense that, that there's a use it or lose it principle at play in the mind, just as we know there is in the body. So I think, you know, if we were just going to try to be brief about it, those would be, those would be kind of the, the high takeaways on brain health. Mm. Actually, you mentioned inflammation a couple of times, but we never really connected it to anything specific. How do you think about mitigating, just, well, I guess, assessing inflammation and mitigating its effects or mitigating it its, itself with diet or, or otherwise? What, I mean, how, just, well, I, I would imagine it touches many of the topics we've spoken about specifically. Yeah, it's a huge amplifier of other disease processes. I mean, its its relationship in cardiovascular disease is the most well established, but I think it's also clear that that inflammation plays a, a pretty significant role in at least some types of dementia, including certain types of Alzheimer's disease. There's there you know there's Alzheimer's disease is sort of a destination, and there are many paths there. There's kind of a, a more vascular path, a more lipid path, a more metabolic path, and and probably a, a, a more inflammatory path. So we can measure certain biomarkers that are relatively nonspecific, but somewhat sensitive, meaning if they're elevated, you know there's inflammation, but if they're elevated, you don't exactly know what's, what it's from. But when they're negative, they're really helpful. So if you run a full panel of inflammatory markers like, you know, CRP or C-reactive protein and, you know, ESR and interleukins and things like that. But I think the more relevant question is, okay, well, what do you do if they're elevated? Well, I think one of the greatest culprits of these elevations is indeed insulin resistance. And the, and the reason for it is, we kind of, I didn't really finish the story on this, so it's good that we came back to it. You know, we each have kind of a, a set capacity of how much excess energy we can store. And when we exceed that capacity, the excess fat starts to spill out of those subcutaneous fat cells. Now, subcutaneous fat cells are a very safe place to store excess energy. And aside from them not being maybe aesthetically pleasing, because you certainly get fatter, it's inert, right? It's a, it's a safe place to store energy. When that capacity is exceeded, and everybody, again, has a different capacity, that fat starts to seep out and spill into non-inert places. And largely speaking, you have roughly five of those different places. So you can store that around organs, in the abdomen, you can store it in the liver, in the muscle, around the, in, in the pancreas, around the heart and kidneys. I guess that's actually six. So that type of fat is actually quite inflammatory. That type of fat releases inflammatory cytokines. And so that's why we see this hallmark of metabolic disease and inflammation going hand in hand. Mm. It's because metabolic disease is being driven by all of these changes associated with excess energy, and one of those is excess inflammation. Now, there are other reasons people can have excess inflammation. We will see lots of dietary triggers can do it. Unfortunately, the tests that try to look for that are not that helpful. You really just need to do an old school elimination test where you 
sort of pick a culprit, eliminate it from the diet, take it out for, you know, eight to 12 weeks, assess both symptoms and biomarkers, and then reintroduce it and see if it comes back. And in my experience, the, the two most potent agents of that tend to be wheat or dairy. So those would be usually two places we would start with people that, that have sort of unexplained inflammation that isn't just attributable to, you know, a state of excess energy. Mm. Okay, so finally, emotional health and well-being. How do you think about this piece? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I guess it is ironic that we're talking about it yeah. at the very end, because I do think in many ways, though it's the last chapter of the book, I think it's the most important, uh, which is uh, without this, I don't think any of the other stuff matters. So if your life and your relationships are miserable, then it doesn't matter how long you live. You, in fact, the longer you live, the more cursed you might be. So though it's not something that I figured out early in life, I'm, I'm glad I figured it out eventually, that I, you know, I, I sort of needed to, to kind of fix that part of my life so that there, there was, you know, kind of a, a bit of a, a better purpose to my existence, I guess. Yeah. And I was, you know, as someone who knows you, I, you know, I, you and I don't see each other all that much. And so I, I was surprised at how much I didn't know about what you were going through in recent years. I mean, going all the way back, but I mean, you, you, you know, the ordeal you describe in the last chapter of your book is not merely something that happened in childhood. It's something that's been with you up to the present. And it's something that is just not, um, you know, certainly not obvious on the outside unless you start talking about it. And I mean, in your case, you really describe it as the sort of interlocked problem of anger and depression. What has been a remedy for that? I mean, I think of it in two ways, I suppose. The first has been the, 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 the treatment, like the acute addressing of the, of the problem as I was sort of, you know, spiraling out of control. And then I would say, and then what's now my ongoing maintenance, right? So maybe those are, those are kind of two yeah. different things. But I think that, that at addressing the, the, the root cause of the issue, I think, you know, intensive residential, in my case, trauma-based therapy was, you know, I don't think I'm overstating it. I mean, I think it's, that's what saved my life, right? And that's not necessary. Other people don't need to do that. Many people could arrive at that through, you know, I think traditional psychotherapy done as an outpatient, you know, an hour every other week or something. I, I unfortunately was just past that point, And I was probably only going to get to the point where I could deal with this if I had no choice and I was immersed in a place where I had to be doing therapy, you know, 12 or 13 hours a day without stop for weeks at a time. And that maybe just speaks to how stubborn I am. It may also speak to how late I waited to get help. But without that degree of intervention, I wasn't getting better. An analogy might be, you know, there are probably certain people who drink too much who can sort of decide, you know, I need to stop drinking. And, uh, you know, I think I can do this on my own and I'm just going to sort of slow it down a little bit. I wasn't that guy, right? I was the guy who was, you know, drunk 24 seven and was on the verge of his liver failing and had to be, you know, 
maybe put into a, you know, maybe needed a liver transplant and then needed to go into therapy for a long time to make sure he never drank again. So mm. again, I would say that that's been, you know, incredibly important. I think as far as the maintenance side of things, I think certainly ongoing psychotherapy has been essential. And then I would probably say dialectical behavioral therapy as a particular type of therapy, DBT, has been, you know, remarkable in, in terms of constantly grounding me in understanding the relationship between a feeling, emotion, a reaction. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with DBT, and, and obviously mindfulness is an important piece of DBT because mindfulness is a tool that you need to understand and pause for a moment between uh, stimulus and response. And so obviously the more mindful a person can be, which is a practice you obviously have devoted your life to explaining to people, the easier it becomes to, to sort of manage issues within yourself and issues between yourself and others. And DBT is simply a, a, a set of really great tools that, and frameworks that, that, that help me do that. You know, offline, I'd love to know what resources you recommend on that point, because maybe we can bring some of that into the app, because you know, we, we've, we've got some cognitive behavioral therapy there. And, you know, insofar as it, it admits of kind of one-way useful communication, it might be um, something we could build out. Yeah, I did. I did really did an interesting podcast as well with a woman. And if if folks are if folks are interested, uh, there's there's a I think I think the podcast with her on DBT was really great. It um, again, it's it's uh, you know it's 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 not a it's not an easy topic to explain to people. But uh, you know, it was God. I probably did this podcast a year ago. Her name mm. is Shireen uh, Rizvi. R I Z V I. And she's a professor at Rutgers. Right. And, and not only is she, you know, someone who knows a lot about this, I, I found Shireen to be excellent at explaining it. So I think if anybody wants to even consider if DBT is something they might be interested in, you know, checking out that podcast and then, you know, deciding from that point if they want to go out and look for DBT therapists. But we, we, I've sent a number of my patients to, to therapists in DBT and... Um, I think it's, you know, it, it would definitely be something that might be interesting to, to you and, and users of, uh, of the app. Nice, nice. Well, I'll check her out. And um, again, I recommend that anyone who wants more information on anything we've, we've spoken about here and, and many of the topics we didn't even hit, they should check out your book, Outlive, and your podcast, The Drive, which really is, I mean, just to say that it's a wealth of information doesn't really quite indicate what's going on there. It's, a, it's an absolute blizzard of detail. There, there's sort of no limit to how granular you get on many of these topics you know, over, over at the drive. So I strongly recommend that um, people dig in, and hopefully this um, comparatively superficial tour was useful. Uh, again, Peter, thank you for your time. It's really um, it's been a great tour of human health and um, risk mitigation. And uh, I, you know, I, I think it's a great first blueprint for people to then uh, use to explore further. So thanks again. Appreciate it so much, Sam. Thanks for making the time. And thanks for making the time to read the book. I know the stack of books on your desk grows. It's, it's growing in the wrong uh, direction. Yes, it's, it's growing it's, in the wrong direction. We need, so uh, I, I'm honored that somehow my book weaseled its way to the top of that list. We need, we need some surgery over here on my desk. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, was, it was great. 
And congratulations again, because uh, it appears that half the people on planet Earth are reading it. Well, I appreciate it, Sam. Thank you. <laughs>